0: This is Jocko podcast number 382 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. The Congo's recent independence from Belgium had triggered a secession crisis by one of the country's most mineral rich and wealthy provinces. It led to an opening for the Soviet bloc to exploit rebellions among local tribal factions. The U.S. saw the country as a strategic geopolitical necessity against communism, which meant the Congo was turning into a superpower battleground. The U.S. feared that losing influence in the Congo was the next step to losing Africa. The CIA had sent me to the Congo to conduct a clandestine Operation under as deep a cover as possible, while still enabling and sustaining the conduct for a successful mission. The suits in Washington recognized that the communist rebels needed to be contained. The strategy was to cut off their supply lines and strangle their resource base, which would require battle-tested and seaworthy hands. And the world could not know we were responsible. We were holding back the line on insurgent violent communism It was the boiling years of the Cold War and Africa was becoming a hotbed of potential dominoes that might fall the wrong way if we didn't pay attention and As all eyes were focused on that other communist battleground in Southeast Asia the US government wanted to keep Africa involvement as quiet as possible and ensure that no one could find our fingerprints on this op. Consequently, one of the most important elements in my Congo mission was to cover the ass of the US government. They needed a guy who had the knowledge and covert experience to make this a successful play. The CIA had determined that I was that guy. And that right there is an excerpt from a book which is called Cold War Navy seal it's written by James Jim Haas who as a 26 year old seal lieutenant ended up building and commanding a small Navy in the Congo a small Navy that helped defeat communism in that country including the communist icon Shea Guevara but it's not all he did in his career He served with the U.S. Surface Navy, was involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident, worked with SOG in Vietnam, and has worked and lived around the world. And it's an honor to have him with us here tonight to share his experiences and lessons learned. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to
1: be here. It's always fun to talk to young seals who are interested in ancient history
0: (laughs) (laughs) well it's very it's always nice to be called the young seal when i've been retired for 10 years and i'm 51 years old so i appreciate it but i guess everything is perspective right i'd trade you (laughs) oh no doubt i always look at the younger guys i trade with them in a heartbeat um yeah thanks for coming down and i guess this is a lot of stuff to cover let's jump into it um let's just talk about you know you growing up so you were born in Oklahoma, but you didn't grow up there, right? Oklahoma, then uh, the
1: panhandle to Texas during the Second World War. My dad was a Pacific uh, battleship sailor. So what what year were you born? 39.
0: Okay, and so do you remember, what do you remember about the Second World War, if anything?
1: Oh, well, I remember my General MacArthur's uniform. <laughs> I remember my father sending me um, a, a a bracelet made out of pe- plexiglass from a Japanese kamikaze that hit their ship. He was in da- he was in damage control. Um, I remember the first time I saw him, which was after he had been away for three years, and I, of course, I didn't know what he looked like. All I knew is there was that guy s- standing there in a sailor uniform, and he had to be the guy. And I set the world record in. Broad jump leaping into his arms. I remember that very well. <laughs> so, and then of course, I remember the end and all the victory. What year did stuff. he come home? He came home in 46.
0: And what year did he leave? Uh, 42. So you just didn't remember the beginning, and yeah. then you're growing right. up. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to the news, or I guess reading newspapers, or is your mom telling you what's going on? Well,. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I, I whatever I knew, I knew from my mother. Right, and of course the only you had some radio, but uh, mostly it was it was from um, Yeah, mm-hmm. and this was while you were in Texas. This is while we were in the Panhandle of Texas. Yeah, am Amarillo. My mother was the classic uh, uh, World War II uh, what they call them um, the.
0: Uh, the riveter uh, yeah uh, riveter, uh, Rosie yeah, riveter yeah,
1: except her her riveter was a, was in a synthetic rubber plant in uh outside of uh, borger texas and uh because it had taken all the it had taken all the rubber <laughs> in the world so phillips 66 built a, uh, built this uh, butadiene plant synthetic rubber plant and every morning we get picked up in a bus uh in borger and i'd get dropped off at what today would be called a daycare center And she would go make synthetic rubber, (laughs) pick me up, and we'd go home. That was what it is. And uh, my first year of grade school, you know, they weren't building classrooms. They weren't building houses. So we didn't live great. Fifty-five years later, i got to say this without choking up. Fifty-five years later, she apologized to me for the way we had to live during this time. Because it wasn't. It wasn't good, but of course I didn't notice it. you know, it's with my mother and it's the way kids are. And as long as we were together, it didn't, it didn't pay any attention to anything else, but it had bothered her all those years. Sure.
0: Amazing. Anyway. Um, yeah. So uh, how was your dad when he came home? How was his hearing? I always think about those World War II guys with the guns firing well, and they didn't yeah, know about I mean, hearing 16 protection. 16-inch
1: guns on that ship <laughs> and, and, and damage control. I, he didn't talk about it once, except one time after one of those kamikazes, uh, he said there were 23 guys in uh, damage control and 21 of them got wounded. He was one that did, one of the two. He, didn't, he never really talked much about it. And of course, in retrospect, I didn't ask mm-hmm. all the things I should have and could have asked. Uh, but you know, I, I I never. He was fine. He was like all those guys. He was ready to get back at it and, mm-hmm. and, and you know be with his family, support his family, whatever.
0: And what, he the, end, what did what he end up doing for a living when he got back?
1: Well, he did a lot of things. Uh, he um, he he got a he got a job in Wisconsin when he got back, and uh, so we got on a train and and uh, went to Wisconsin to join him. A little town called Beaver Dam population 10,000 and he worked for the local lumber company and he ran the cement block plant and he was involved in home building and he was always he was always in sales type stuff he had quite an outgoing personality and uh yeah so we were there for the next 10 years or so and uh I went to a there's a local private school called wayland academy which is the oldest coeducational private school in the country and i got a scholarship there which changed my life because beaver dam wasn't exactly uh, the launching pad for colleges and universities around the area and um and my head the headmaster was a guy named ray patterson who was the guy who built the milwaukee bucks and the houston rockets he was a hell of a guy he'd been an all-american basketball player at the university of wisconsin in the early 40s had a huge influence on my life and he was a great man so that was uh that was luck and then um that was all luck and then we uh we moved back to texas when i was uh going into
0: my senior year so what year is that? high school i'd be 56 so you're just growing up in the uh, like one of the most iconic periods in oh, American history.
1: No question about it. And did yeah. you I mean, I were mean everything you? is everything <laughs> everything was possible. Everything was possible. And of course that's the way my parents were. You can do anything you want to do. Go get them. Yeah. You know? So
0: were you playing sports <laughs> in high school?
1: Oh yeah. What'd
2: yeah.
0: you play? Yeah,
1: I played football, basketball, track and tennis. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And the music. I mean, you got Elvis. Like, it's just an iconic time. Is that I where remember, you remember? I
1: remember when Elvis was first on uh, Ed Sullivan's uh, TV show. Yeah, that was a big deal. I think that was in '56, <laughs> maybe it was spring of '57. I can't remember. But anyway, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, you're th- at this time. Are you thinking as you're growing up? Are you thinking about joining the military? Well, everybody did. You know, everybody had a had a re- had a service requirement. So
1: I, uh, I just always you always assumed that that's that you would do that, and I, I, uh, having seen, uh, having seen Woodmark, Richard Woodmark, and the Frogmen, like so, so many of the other guys, I said that's for me. And um, but I always knew I had these terrible eyes, so I had to. But I, I also knew somehow I was going to do it. I, I you know just never there was never any doubt in my mind
0: but you ended up going to college right after yeah. high school yeah mm-hmm. and then what was the college experience again you're you're like in the most prime
1: oh the worst the worst four years of my life was college <laughs> worst four years of my life. I had no fun I had no money I had no fun I wasn't I didn't know what I wanted to do except get out and go to OCS I you know that was a four years wasted time and yeah, I should have gone into the military right out of high school and yeah. then gone back to college. But
0: I I but, uh, I make, I've made that recommendation to a lot of kids yeah, over the years. Yeah. You when you're yeah. 18 years old, you're not ready yeah. to go to college. You Want four more years yeah. of sitting in a classroom. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, no, that was <laughs> Well, it was so good that I started I spent my first four weeks of college at the University of Texas. Had a girlfriend in Wisconsin. I was a walk-on in Daryl Royal's first year at the University of Texas, and, you know, he was an icon coach, football coach in Texas and, I guess, around the world, around the country. And um, so, you know, Daryl Royal in his first year when Texas was coming off the floor wasn't interested in a <laughs> I mean, 155-pound quarterback who couldn't see. And <laughs> plus I had this girlfriend in Wisconsin – so, I came home for my first weekend in college. My mother's all excited. I'm first guy to go to college, of course, in the family. And uh, I said, Well, uh, I'm going to Wisconsin. <laughs> Needless to say, it caused some hate and discontent at the table. And uh, I'll never, my dad took my side. And I remember when he drove me to the bus station the next morning to get back to Austin to get throw my stuff in a box and get on a train. He said, I want you to know that's the first time your mother ever went to bed mad and woke, woke up mad. Ooh. So don't screw up. Well, of course I did, but <laughs> 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 then I spent that, I spent the rest of that year at a really good place called Lawrence, now called Lawrence University. It was called Lawrence College then in Appleton, Wisconsin. And, it, and then I was so ashamed of myself by the end of that year I said this is just crazy I'm gonna start all over from forget sports I gotta you know I gotta do something right so I went to so I went to SMU and and uh, there was a Dean there named Mac Adams and I said Dean <clears throat> I got no money and I'm on academic probation but I said uh the, the, the Dean at Lawrence will give me a recommendation and uh, help me get some jobs I like to go to school here he said fine <laughs> so he's, he helped me get a couple of jobs and uh and so I finished my next I basically did four years and three years at SMU and you just worked hard the whole time yeah I just worked hard I had jobs and I you know I had yeah I just had extra load of classes but it became a matter of pride to finish in four years which is stupid because all I meant was my my grades weren't very good. (laughs) So you can understand when I said to my son, who's now in college, son, you can come to me with any problem, any concern you got, because you can't make any mistake that I didn't make. (laughs) Uh,
0: uh, So at what point did you start applying to to OCS? Did you have to apply for OCS? Yeah,
1: I applied to OCS. I did it during my senior year. And, uh, and, uh, so I graduated, I think May or June and I went to OCS on, uh, in August. What year uh, was this? 1963, 1961, 1961. Yeah, so I finished OCS cause of Christmas, et cetera, in February of 1962.
0: Okay. And your first job was as a surface warfare officer, right? <laughs>
1: Well, uh, yeah, on a, on a floating refrigerator. It was <laughs> <laughs> uh, USS Vega AF-59. It was a reefer, and I was the damage control. So wait, it's a literal refrigeration yeah, ship? That yeah, yeah, I did all the undersea replenishments. Replenishments. Yeah, hell of a captain, really good captain. So that was really good. It was a good experience. I became an OD, an officer of the deck underway, et cetera. I mean, it's not exactly like be an officer of a DECO destroyer in formation, but it's called independent steaming. <laughs> and uh, and so, um, that, yeah, so I had, uh, I'd bought myself some contact lenses with my first paycheck at o- when it was in OCS. So I had my contact lenses.
0: And contact lenses at the time were brand new technology type well, thing?
1: They weren't in the forms. They didn't have anything, anything about Anything about uh, conduct lenses in the Navy forms.
0: So, uh, you got a little section in your book about this, and I think it, I thought it was pretty. Um, that was pretty good. You say here, I considered applying to become a frogman, and you you said that because you saw that frogman movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did your dad tell you anything about frogman? I didn't even know about no, it. No, no, my dad didn't tell me anything about it. You say, but my eyesight was enough to keep me out of the seals altogether to enter the Navy and attend officer candidate school to become an Unrestricted line officer. I needed a medical waiver My eyesight was 2200 the worst allowable under the required medical standards if correctable to 2020 with eyeglasses So I purchased contact lenses with my first Navy paycheck I was fully aware that my eyesight might prevent me from even entering the frogman training I went to Yokosuka Naval Base Hospital and timed my eye exam to occur during the lunch period. There was a Corman striker, a medic in training, on duty in the unit. I knew his minimal medical experience would yield the least resistance to my desired result. I said, Corman, I need to get back to the ship. Can I read the chart to complete this exam? With contact lenses in, I read the chart and passed with excellent 2015 vision. (laughs) There's nothing on any of the forms that questioned the contact lenses or anything related since the forms had not kept pace with the technology My application sailed through channels and I got immediate orders to report to underwater demolition team replacement training class 29 Commencing January 2nd 1963 I was in (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I was of course in terrible. You know, I didn't I was terrible shape because I just got off the ship and and went east to stop for Christmas with my folks, and went east and um, and you know the 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 moral dilemma that I had was officers carry their medical records and I looked in my medical jacket and you know, sure as hell there was my <laughs> there was my waiver the last page in the on, in the jacket. And so the Do I did I tear it out or did I leave it in? Well, you know, you can't. You, you're in, you've got an oath, and so I thought, well, let's see if God wants me to be a frogman. <laughs> <laughs> so I reported in over there, and they had a first class diving corpsman, not not a not a frog, first class diving corpsman on duty, and he was receiving the medical, when you went and you did, you know, you squat jumps, whatever, and you handed him your medical jacket, and he starts going, leafing through it, and he flicks the pages, and the last page with the, the, the waiver on it stuck to the previous page. So he didn't see it, so I thought, <laughs> whoopee, I'm in. Of course, and I'm looking at everybody through my contact lenses, and, uh, and so we started the training, And we're down to we had gone to uh, we just finished Camp Pickett, which was about halfway through training.
0: And so you're so you're going through what they used to call UDT replacement training, which is now called Buds, and you're going through Class Twenty Nine. And this is on the East Coast because for a while they ran SEAL training on East Coast and West Coast. You're on the East Coast, which is in Virginia. Right. And it's January.
1: It was the snowiest winter they had had in recorded history of Virginia. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something that you will go understand this haven't been an instructor uh, the, instru- the, the, the the days leading up to hell week were pretty nice was pretty nice weather and the instructors kept saying it always snows for hell week <laughs> We go to bed on on we, we go to bed on Sunday evening and the weather's not bad. It you know after midnight it all you know all it all cuts loose. We fall out of there stumbling all over ourselves, and we fall down in the snow. <laughs> you can imagine the psychological <laughs> impact that I had. It was these wow, these instructors of <laughs> they do magic, and that was the start.
2: <laughs> that was
1: the start of it. <laughs> And it, it was cold, Jesus.
0: And the, uh, but you weren't really physically prepared because you'd been on a ship.
1: Yeah, I, I knew. I was what just gonna, did you know
0: about SEAL training? Nothing.
1: No, the movie. I didn't know anything about it, except it was going to hurt a lot. <laughs> 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 that's, that's all I knew. I, I met some guys at the officer's club in in uh, Yucouska who knew something about it. And they were telling me uh, we were having drinks, and they were telling me about it. And I thought, well, shit, I guess this really is going to hurt. <laughs> but what can, you know, what yeah. do you do? You just do what you have to do. So.
0: How long was it? Was it like six months long?
1: The uh, base, the uh, it was yeah, it was six months long. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And was there yeah. was there anything that really challenged you? Did you have a hard time? Like, were you good in the water?
1: I was. Uh, I was. I was good runner. I was good on the obstacle course. I was good in the water in the pool. But when we got into that into the ocean with those heavy duck feet on my skinny little legs, <laughs> and that that was painful. I remember we we're, were in Rosie Roads for uh, for for training, and we're uh, I don't know, I think it's three miles swim or the five miles swim. We are going around the island, and <clears throat> I got. oh no, it was a three mile swim. I got more than six feet away from my swim buddy so the next one which was i guess five miles whatever it was a little fuzzy in the thing but it was a long way uh (laughs) they put a three inch hawser between tied me to, to my swim buddy so i was dragging that we were dragging that thing through the entire swim I'm crying like a baby in my face mask. I mean, it, re- <laughs> it really
0: hurt. <laughs>
1: but it, it finished.
0: <laughs> the, the pain will eventually stop.
1: And, of course, when you're swimming around and, and, and the, the tide's going the wrong way, oh, you remember is being, and, and you try to get into the into the coral to break it up, but you don't want to get the coral and get get cut to pieces. I remember stroke – Stroking, looking up there was this little house or shed or something up on this point in the ceiling. We're as close into the coral as we can get. I'm stroking, I'm stroking, yeah. and that place is staying exactly the same
2: place. Yeah. <laughs> we did
0: our we did our five and a half nautical mile swim just in Coronado, just down and back. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, you're like looking at whatever, some marker on the beach, right. and it's just not moving. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. just not going anywhere. You're like, why is this taking so long? You're thinking of yeah. like the current. You're thinking yeah. it's the wind. You're thinking yeah. it's your swim buddy. It's like, yeah. uh, no, it's just going to be a long, arduous time.
1: And by this time, uh, by this time, the instructors found out that I was going to be coming back to be their boss.
0: So that, that took and place because— they found out about your vision. Oh, oh, yeah. right. so, so talk they, us through that.
1: Oh, yeah. So they found out about my, uh, so it, we're, we're, we finished Camp Pickett. We're halfway through the training <laughs> and I get called into the, and we're down to the hard cores, pretty much the hard cores, you know. And uh, so I get called the instructor's hut and the funniest guy there was in the SEAL team is a guy named, uh, uh, <laughs> escapes me now, hell of a guy. And he says, Mr. Ross, how many fingers am I holding up? I thought, Whoa, uh (laughs) uh-oh, and he said, they wanna see you back there in officer's country. So I go back, come to attention, face to face with a guy whose job I'm subsequently gonna have, and he says, okay, how's what you do. So I told him the absolute truth, that's all I could do. He's shaking, I'm telling the story, he's shaking his head, and he said, well, you know, you might be eligible for a court-martial. And I said I don't think so sir I didn't say anything and I didn't sign anything and he said well I don't know what's gonna happen but you got to get over and get to the ophthalmology department right now and get an exam so I go over to the ophthalmology department and the doctor says "Oh, well, I'm glad to meet you you're a medical phenomenon you've <laughs> gone from 2200 to 2015 in less than a year <laughs> Bureau of Medicine wants to know about you and I said well it's in actually the way it is, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he said, "Well, we've got to give you." An, I, he, 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 I, he, I said, I'm, "I got contact lenses." And he said, "Whoa, okay." And he said, "Well, I don't know what I can do about that." And I said, "Well, Doc, you got to do something. That's not good enough. You got to do something." He said, "Well, let me give you an exam." So he does the exam, and sure enough, I'm twenty fifteen. And he said, well, I don't know what to say, you're 20. You're 2200. You're I said, Doc, you gotta say something. You just gotta say something. He said, I can say you're extremely well adapted for contact lenses, so say it. So he said it. So I go back to the training, I'm missing some evolutions, and of course the instructors aren't happy about that. And nobody knows what my status is, is going to be or whatever. So I get called over to the senior medical officer in the Atlantic Fleet. And I'd seen this guy watching training. He, he liked to come come watch training, whatever. So I get called in <clears throat> to see him. I walk in, ramrod, straight, tension, poof. Ensign Hawes reporting, is directed, sir, blah, blah, blah. He just looks at me. And I, I, he, he just looked at me like he was looking into my soul. And uh, finally, I couldn't stand any longer, and I knew this was it. This is the court's last resort. So I just, from the tip of my toes, <laughs> it, the intensity just came out, and I said, "Admiral, I'm standing first in my class right now. So don't tell me I'm not physically qualified." And he, <clears throat> he just looked, He just kept looking at me, and finally said, "Okay, I'll recommend a waiver." As far as I know, I hadn't been done before. So I was always grateful. You, you gotta see a guy like that'll take a situation on its merits rather than just go by the, you know, that, was, that was good Navy, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, so uh, that wasn't the end of it though because in those days, you know, the Navy wouldn't let the SEALs do their own training. Because, you know, the, the SEALs were, the, you, the frogs were the orphans of the Navy, unwanted orphans of the Navy. <laughs> and um, so I get caught, and it's, so it's run by the Naval Amphibious School which is run by a captain, a force driver. So I get called over to the captain's office. And uh, and, and this and is sir. a regular fleet guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I get uh, Rinsen Hall's report is directed, sir. And he said, okay, what'd you do? <laughs> so I <laughs> tell him the story. He's shaking his head. He said, well, I have, I have a recommendation here for a waiver that I can forward either approved or disapproved. How would you like to come back as an instructor? I said, Captain, I'd love to do that after I've operated a couple of years. I'd love to come back to the instructor. He said, I don't think you understood me, and said, I got a waiver here that I can forward either approved or disapproved. How would you like to come back as an instructor? <laughs> I said, I'd love it, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the board came down. I went to jump school. You don't have to be able to see to, to jump, as you know. And then went to underwater swim school. And uh, the diving medical officer there wasn't going to allow me to to uh, complete the underwater swim school because I had contact lenses. I said, "Doc, I said I am not trying to hurt myself or anybody else. So I went into a chamber, went down to 200 feet with my contact lenses in. And it doesn't it doesn't matter. Well, you're going to do it. So I go to see the XO, and the XO is an x frog He mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> said, "Don't worry, Jim. By the time uh, we will cross the waiver, by the time they act on it, you'll you'll be finished with the training." So.
2: So did you pretty happened. much
0: wear contact lenses all the time all the time and they never like fell out or one did one time and no factor No, no factor Did you carry a spare? actually
1: it was what we were doing uh, around the world in, in hell week Okay, <laughs> and a in a branch just picked it right out. Just I'm glad they had the lens it was got my eyeball It just picked it right out. But it didn't matter I had another set so it, what's not around the gonna, world? <clears throat> yeah, it, it, during Hell Week, we had this uh, exercise where we we took the boats. We took it through all canals. We went through all kinds of mud flats, all kinds of whatever stuff but it, around the world. He ended up, as I recall, back in the bay, paddling into the yeah the whatever. But it, it took most of the night. Yeah, okay. in Coronado,
0: what they do is they they launch you into the bay side of the of Coronado. Yeah. And you you know you carry the boats over there, go through the mud, then you launch and then you paddle all the way around Coronado all the way back out the channel out into the ocean and then back and you come into the beach oh, but it takes like like six seven hours yeah. <laughs> and you know, people are falling asleep and it's usually yeah. pretty late I mean it's maybe two or three days in a hell week and it's a little bit of a it's a little bit like you get time away from the instructors you uh, know so're yeah, yeah. so people are like falling asleep and oh, but yeah, it's just a long I haul.
1: really can't almost can't remember. I mean, I can only remember bits and pieces of it. It's like, you know, your mind's so far out of gear by this yeah. point. You yeah. just
0: people are hallucinating stuff <laughs> and seeing stuff and <laughs> probably not the best time to lose your contact lens. <laughs> for, yeah. Oh, well, uh, so so then you come back. So you just graduate from training and then they send oh, you yeah. right back so, as an instructor. Yeah, so then
1: I have, so we're down in Puerto Rico during the, you know, the, the, and, and doing these long swims and all that stuff, and and uh, the instructors find out, of course, they always always find out. And um, Master Chief Tom Blaze, who is one of the old legends, um, said to me, Mr. Hawes, I'm gonna make make it my mission um to make sure you deserve to be my boss so i had his personal so you're (laughs) asking about swimming so i had his personal attention in in uh in puerto rico and (laughs) i'd be on those long swims and my my legs would be like rubber and blaze would be on my ass (laughs) <laughs> so I got a lot better at it, but I was never really, never really uh, one of the top guys in the water.
0: Were you? Were those UDT guys that were putting you through training? Were some of those guys World War II guys oh, or Korea yeah. guys? Yeah, yeah. We had a guy
1: named John Parrish, who drove the uh, who drove the uh, the landing boats at Iwo Jima, <laughs> or no, at Tarawa. At Tarawa, uh, we had uh, a fabulous guy who just died a few years ago named Jim Cook who was a World War II frog. We had a a fabulous guy named Chester Cleveland. See, I actually had him later. Chester Cleveland Stevens, who had gone to work for the agency, and he was down at a base they had in North Carolina when I was doing some training for the agency down Mm -hmm. there and uh, conducting some training for the agency with, with Chester. And he was one of the guys whose body they used when they put together the Navy diving tables, they had put him in a chamber and take him down. And his and he met his the woman who was his wife for 50 years or whatever. She was she was one of the nurses on the chamber, and so they had take him down. I started to bring him up. If he went, if he started, Phew. if he started to go, if he started to bend, quickly take him back down again. Dang. Oh, hell of a guy. <laughs> hell of a guy.
0: What was his name? Chester Cleveland Stevens. The 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 guy that they based the navy. No, he was one of the. I up. don't
1: know. I'm sure they had more than one. Yeah. but he he was but one. That's still crazy. Yeah, crazy. Uh, but well, what else are they were going to do? A trial and error. I mean, Yeesh. how was she going to do it? So anyway, uh, and uh, Benny Salinsky, Chief Salinsky was our uh, was our chief instructor, and he was World War Two guy. He hell of a guy. Hell of a guy. And all these guys treated me when I reported into the, you know, after training, treated me like I'd been their teammate for 20 years mm. and the best they ever met. I mean, it was, they were so professional. It was a fabulous year. Fabulous
0: how, year. And how many classes did you watch get put through? Two. Two. What did you learn from watching classes get put through, especially because it was so fresh in your mind?
1: I sure learned that you can't tell anything about anybody that you can't see inside of. <laughs> it's a weird thing isn't it yeah and how to how to, in, 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 uh, try to get a little better at how to look inside but it's pretty hard you got to you gotta put them under people under stress of one kind or another to find out what they're made of
0: it's very I, bizarre I,
1: I went down right after a report I went down to Key West to screen to, get, to screen people that were going to apply I came back and I said to the, inst- the instructors I said well I met the guy who's going to be Honor man, in this next glass. Oh, Famous oh last yeah, words. Mr. Hodge. <laughs> you know that damn guy was the first to quit, not the second. The first to quit. Well, you can imagine oh. uh, the flack that I took <laughs> from these guys on that one.
0: What made you think he was going to be so awesome? He was just really good physically. Mm-hmm.
1: I, and, I, and even after having just gone through it, I, I still undervalued the
0: the mental. Yeah. Uh, toughness it takes i had i had a friend he was a captain and he was very very careful and he's never recommended anybody he he would say this he'd say i'm never recommending anybody and finally this candidate came along officer and he spoke a few different languages and he had all these assets and went to some ivy league school and he would this this particular captain was very forward thinking and like oh we need to start learning languages and i think he spoke you know like some crazy combination of languages mm-hmm. like Farsi and Chinese. I mean, some yeah, really right. good combination. Yeah. So he finally breaks down and gets this guy, the, the, gets this guy to go to Bud's same thing. Yeah. I, I I didn't remember, I didn't know about any of that part. I only knew when the guy quit yeah. and I was a, I was in the office when this guy, you get the word, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? <laughs> I'm never gonna, I'm never doing this again. I've never recommended anybody again. Well, well, in thing.
1: the Well, ne- in the next class, we had this officer really good physically a top ivy league university spoke fluently spanish and portuguese had everything and the <laughs> instructors were saying no oh, this these guys mr smith's going to be honor man i said nope mm-hmm. i'm telling you this guy has has imposed his own limitations and when he hits him he's going to quit Uh, uh, oh yeah what about so-and-so so (laughs) So we start we start hell week and on the first day I use up to him as we're running on the beach in the afternoon said how you doing mr. Smith fine instructor said mr. Smith these instructors think you're gonna be honor man but I think you're gonna quit and uh, never instructor okay well when you get ready let me know so I use off next Tuesday the next morning on next afternoon Tuesday and it's a beautiful day. I'll say, Mr. Smith, how you doing? Oh, fine, instructor. I said, you know, Mr. Smith, look at all those ships exercising out there in the bay. I said, all the smart officers are sitting in the wardroom drinking coffee. Why are you here? Oh, you am going to be a frog, this Smith's instructor. Okay, well, I don't think you are. When you're ready, let me know. <coughs> Wednesday. Mr. Smith, I can see your dragon. You sure you want to Put up with this? I mean, you're so smart and well educated, and whatever. You sure you want to do this? Yes, instructor. I said, well, I don't think so, Mr. Smith. But when you're ready, just hand me your helmet. Thursday afternoon.
0: It, Thursday. Is this hell this yeah, is Hell Week. This is Hell Week. So we made it through four yeah, days. Okay. Yeah.
1: Thursday afternoon. I said, well, Mr. Smith, you ready to quit? Yes, instructor. He hands me his helmet. <laughs> Yeah, how do you know? (laughs) (laughs) And we had another guy. You probably heard of him, named Randy Wise. He was an all. He was a he was jump happy. He was a parachute guy. Wonderful guy. Wonderful guy. And uh, he was in the same class. So I thought, well, I'll work. I always worked on the officers. (laughs) I didn't, you know, I I worked hard on the officers. (laughs) And uh, so I (laughs) I went up to Randy on the same beach, same sort of. How you doing, Mister Wise? Oh, fine instructor. I said. uh, Mr. Wise, what makes you think you're gonna complete this training? <laughs> he said, You did instructor.
0: <laughs> so I left him alone. <laughs> we became great friends. <laughs> now this is what what so are we in nineteen sixty three right now? We're in nineteen
1: sixty three, yes. So
0: what do you know about the SEAL teams versus going to a UDT team?
1: Well, I just see these guys in, in the chow hall. That's all. I don't know. Don't know much about them because after all, remember, all they did basically was take the secondary missions of the of the, of the UDTs and make them the primary mission mm-hmm. of the SEALs, and everybody was going through the same training. So there was no, you know, it was kind of like how do you go? How how does how does the Navy get more appropriations? Got it. Particularly in the aftermath of the JFK thing for special warfare and so forth and the navy looked around that's why ben milligan's book is so instructive yeah. you know it's just a great book f- f- great book yeah and um it's also why though i don't believe there'll ever be a navy there'll never be another admiral in charge of socom the regular army's got it really oh and socom will be diluted it'll either they can't stand them it's culturally they can't stand themselves they have to they have to be big army big regular army they can't help it and to some extent the navy is that way but less so thank god otherwise we wouldn't be around we wouldn't have got to do what we did but i yeah i've right these the, the cultures are such that they can't stand uh well look at the, how long the marine corps fought yeah before they finally finally came around because they had to they was too much pressure on
0: yeah so, well but, that'll be interesting it seemed like they have a little bit of a rotation going on for the SOCOM commander.
1: Well, I think they did. Uh, we'll see if it <laughs> continues. We'll I'm just skeptical, okay? Because I, you know, I've spent all all. I, I never got to really work much with SEALs. Mm-hmm. I was always kind of the lone ranger, and uh, and always we were. There and everything was so politically sensitive. We were always talking to these guys at headquarters. And the guys at headquarters think they're at headquarters because they're smarter than the guys in the field <laughs> <laughs> if you were if you, if you were smart as I am you'd be here you wouldn't be in the field I mean look at Vietnam with Lou Conin, the guy had worked with Ho Chi Minh he wouldn't get listened to I talked to Jock Richardson who was chief of station at, during the at the DM coup I knew him I talked to him he said <clears throat> we told him uh, don't get rid of him now we've got nobody to replace him mm-hmm. we can get rid of him anytime but don't do it now and of course you know the 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 glorious elite uh determined otherwise and what do we have then for the next and we were there so what they have five five new governments in the next six months all of which we were there some of which during the demonstrations were targeting us in bog you know, with the white elephant in in, in denang <clears throat> that was also another lesson that i got for <coughs> for uh agitate for for crowd m- Manipulation in the in the communist uh, Agitation propaganda department of how to control mobs We stood up there on the third floor There's only three floors in Bogdong after one of these changes the government and watching the You know they got in the this crowd of people whipped up and they were going to come in and We had everything burned and we weren't going to fire until they started coming up You know from the second floor and we're looking down on this mob and you see five guys it was right out of the right out of the manual. Mm-hmm. Five guys manipulating, manipulating this crowd. So if you know what you're doing, it's easy. Because my mm-hmm. mob's got no mind.
0: You're right. Uh, Just need someone to give yeah, them p- yeah, p- p- push them yeah, in the right direction yeah, exactly, momentarily, and they follow yeah, each other. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So you get so so. How long you do two classes? You you're Sir, there I, as an instructor for two classes. Are they are they? How many classes they do in a year at that time? Like how long did that take? Two. two okay. Yeah. So you're there for basically I, a
1: year. I wasn't there for the full second class because uh they
0: how long was it until you got orders to udt 21
1: oh i of course you know i would go to work on that immediately so i went over (laughs) i wanted to see ken wolf who was the lieutenant commander in charges of of 21 i said i said mr wolf you you need operators i want to operate get me a waiver he said sure so he (laughs) Separate, separate chain, separate chain of command, separate of, So boom, he got me. Uh, he got me set orders. In come the orders. <laughs> Phone rings. <laughs> it's Captain Lee at the Naval Amphibious School. Pause. Get your ass over here right now. <laughs> So I wrote it's an reporting report, he's directed, Captain. You frogs are always pulling this crap. <laughs> we we got a deal. You're an instructor. I'm getting these orders canceled right now, which he picked up the phone and did. Four stripes, two and a half stripes. <laughs> uh, but the waiver was on the books. That was the key. The thing. waiver to be an the, operational frogman. Operation. Yeah, the waiver was on the books. And that paved the way then for... Uh, when Tarbox called me from SEAL, that paved the way for when Tarbox called me from SEAL Team Two, and said, uh, "You want to go to Vietnam? I can't tell you what what it is because I don't know." If she asks how soon you'd be ready to go, so
0: yeah, so you so you have this waiver in the books, which means despite your eyesight, you're going to be able to go and operate. Yep, yep. You get the an- orders get canceled at UDT Twenty One. And you got a little section about this in the book. You say, almost a year later, I received a phone call from Tom Tarbox, SEAL Team 2XO. He was calling with the kind of offer I'd been waiting for. I have two questions, he said. One, do you want to be assigned to Vietnam on a mission so secret that it comes right straight out of Secretary of Defense McNamara's office? And two, how soon can you be ready to go? I replied, yes sir, in 24 hours. There were very few officers available with my experience and Tarbox knew I was more than ready to join an operating team. When Captain Lee heard about it, he was infuriated with me all over again thinking I had circumvented him and and the agreement we had made. He summoned me to his office yet again and after venting his fury he picked up the phone to get my orders to Vietnam canceled. A struggle to hold in this surging joy as I watched his demeanor turn from imperious to obedient. He finally hung up and said, congratulations, Lieutenant J.G. Haas. Whatever it is, it's so politically sensitive, it comes straight from Secretary McNamara's office. Is there anything I can do to assist you? So I was off to Vietnam, reported to SEAL Team 2 the next day and had a cup of coffee with Tarbox and my life as a covert operator began.
1: When, When I went to the 25th reunion, which was not anything fancy like they do these days, of Seal Team Two, it was in a it was in a bar in uh, Virginia Beach, and uh, you know the name Eagle Gallagher, Bob Gallagher, Eagle, yeah, Eagle Gallagher walks up to me like he's about to beat my ass, and he said, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "I'm here because I belong here." And speak to Tarbox if you if you got any questions, you got any doubt. Well, of course, they need. Sweetened up in a hurry but <laughs> it was uh it was i must have had the shortest tenure in seal team two and anybody in history
0: so <laughs> yeah that's uh i like i like uh captain lee just having to go from you know you're not going to is there anything i can do to assist well, you Well, you
1: know but that again that's another good that's to me that's another kudo for yeah. the navy because the guy said okay geez whatever let me help that's squared know? away. Yeah.
0: Good point yeah Uh, You say here after detaching from SEAL Team 2 bound for Vietnam I stopped by to visit my parents and brother by that time I was trained and fit Frogman headed for war in the pursuit of my dreams as I concluded the visit with my folks My mother put her arms around my neck and said Jim take good care of yourself Please tell them not to send your body home if you get killed. I could not go through it twice. Her words were liberating to me. I knew it was hard for her to let me go, but I also understood and always had that she wouldn't try to deter me. Maybe you had to grow up as she did in the heart of the Dust Bowl and as the wife of a World War II sailor on a battleship to be able to be that strong. It was typical of her to be encouraging of whatever I wanted to do, yet saying goodbye to me twice, once as I departed for war and then again as a casualty, wasn't something she could do but there were no guilt trips, no whining, she didn't cry. She was completely supportive without a selfish gesture of any kind. Her only other request was, just please write. I was ordered immediately to Military Assistance Command Vietnam, Special Operations Group, Naval Advisory Detachment based in Da Nang, where I would spend the next year participating in the takeover of the CIA's Operation 34A, and its expansion and intensification under the Department of Defense.
1: I wrote every week on Sunday night. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good son right there. Uh, yeah, that's a good
0: that's a good son right there. I guess c- people have it easier nowadays with email. Oh yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. I think email was a good thing because you know if you can call or now nowadays guys can FaceTime right yeah. and you and then. That's cool, but it's lost, right? Yep. It's, it's very interesting for me to go back. We didn't have that kind of communications. You could, I, I, you, I, I would call my wife like once a week, maybe mm-hmm. once every two weeks. In fact, we had uh, BTF Tony, who was one of my friends, and he, he remembered he came into my office and he's looking over my shoulder. I have an email from my wife. Uh, it says something like, I haven't heard from you in a month. Is everything okay? <laughs> he just looked at me and said, what's wrong with you, dude? Right, your wife. <laughs> Uh, but um, but I think that's cool because now you can look back and you say you can read your old emails. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can you can read yeah. like I know what was happening during yeah. deployment. I'm looking at what I'm writing my wife. I'm like, oh, I hope everything's yeah. okay. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of stuff going on on deployment, but it's interesting to, to be able to review that. So you know, yeah. that's a good thing about writing letters yeah. as opposed to just a phone call. Um, so you end up with this uh, Mac v in. You know, you say uh, under this authority and McNamara's direction, the military would take over Op Plan 34A, where a principal strategy included the establishment of the Naval Advisory Detachment, NAD. Do you call it NAD? Or mm-hmm. do you call it okay, NAD? Yes. Employing small boats to run harassing raids against North Vietnamese installations. All 34A maritime operations were approved by President Johnson's National Security Advisor, uh, McGeorge Bundy. And communicated directly to NAD Da Nang with a copy to inform Saigon. I mean, this is micromanagement at the highest level. Oh, you it?
1: can't believe it. You if As we go on, you'll hear. You'll hear why I made the comment before about headquarters mentality.
0: Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Well, McNamara was the worst. <laughs> yeah. And Johnson, those guys were just absolutely horrible. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> targeting was done in a vault at Bok dong Bok Dong. Bok Dang,
1: Bok Dang? Dong. It's Dong means white elephant in Vietnamese.
0: Mm. Uh, where the intel was secured, ops planning took place, including proficient aerial photography, interpretation by a Navy intel lieutenant who's a central part of that mix. The SEALs took part in the planning of the operations and conducted the training of the raiding teams, which were made up of South Vietnamese Navy personnel. I was assigned as training officer and assistant operations officer to help run the operation. So you, you're, the only reason, the only way that could happen is that the Navy had no idea.
1: They, The Navy was told to send somebody with these qualifications. It wasn't told about rank, no told about nothing. Because I got relieved by, uh, I was still a JG. I got relieved by a full lieutenant and a lieutenant commander. Mm-hmm. Same job. Mm-hmm. So the only way, only way I got that job was the J, is a JG is because the Navy didn't know what it was all about. And what year is this? This is now, are we in 1964? 64. Yeah. Spring is 64.
0: Y- you show up there, um, actually you say this is pretty interesting, since there were no, pre- no precedents, no manuals, no procedures for what we were doing, the learning curve was dramatic and we were only limited by imagination of what we could make work. Our group was plausibly deniable, clandestine operation, it needed to stay that way. We had to not only avoid our own media but the international control commission the icc a group of three inspectors representing canada poland and india who were tasked with monitoring aggression in the region an important part of my mission was to avoid the icc because the north vietnamese were protesting our raids and trying to bring international public attention to our actions while secretary of state dean rusk repeatedly and publicly denied our existence Mm So what's what's your op tempo like like what's going on like what's a day look a day in the life for lieutenant JG Haas well, in, in this 1964 in Vietnam <clears throat> um, I Was a training officer
1: okay, and assistant ops officer So uh, with respect to training this this uh, detachments came out from CLT one to actually do the training Irish Flynn, you know, our first admiral Mm -hmm. was the first first OIC of that training detachment that I met, and he was relieved by Maynard Wires.
0: You know, I
1: don't. You ought to know that guy, and you ought to get him on. He's open invite. Let's let's make it happen. He's got history like crazy, and he was a hell of an officer. Um, and so they were they were running the training of our of of our individual teams, and we had, as I recall, six six individual teams of, of, composed of Nungs, not, not mixed, mm. <laughs> couldn't mix, <them>. no. <laughs> uh, Nungs and, and, uh, and Vietnamese. And they were, we were, had them isolated in camps one, one mile apart along China Beach. So this is the same area that Meyer later occupied after NAD was gone. And this was all taken over by uh, Sog, mm-hmm. Sog uh, c um, and they talk—they yep. talk about M- Marble Mountain. Yep. Marble yep. Mountain was the southern end of this whole yep. complex. That's where I learned to rappel. <laughs> you know, I didn't. I picked. Where did I, I learn to to uh, to um, free fall? Uh, you know, the chiefs, a couple of chiefs, got me and got a helicopter. And said okay here's what you do blah 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 we got right it up and psh, that was you, in Vietnam to go yeah was you in went Vietnam. To free fall school in Vietnam which was <laughs> right. just a couple of chiefs throwing which you out the airplane. China, which is on China Beach right <laughs> <laughs> safety third yeah exactly <laughs> anyway um, uh, so uh, yeah so we had these six, six teams all along here which would then go do the uh, do the raids in, in the north and I would if I can remember the op tempo correctly because we definitely accelerated it from what it had been it, probably twice a month but not always a team but always the boats mm-hmm. because when we got there the Navy had no small boats I am not exaggerating no small boats so the only three boats that we had were the Swifts um, and they were brought there by the CIA because they were really good for they were a really good boats yeah, but the c i a mostly was doing junks they'd get they get fishing junks, which they felt were more uh, had a less chance of being observed mm-hmm. and so they would modify fishing junks and send guys send send their teams up before we we took over and then we had the then we had the swifts and but they, they none of this could do the kind of harassment of the coastal installations which could be done with the nasties so to the navy's credit they bought the best boats in the world from the norwegians which were the nasty pt boats and they were uh, 95 feet long they made 45 knots you could go all full to all reverse just like that hmm. uh nape high performance nature napier, napier Deltic diesel engines that you you couldn't even be in the engine room they had such a whine you know whatever And they were terrific boats And so those started going up two or three times a month, and that was those were the boats that were causing the uh, the irritations to. I I don't pretend to be able to say how valuable what we did really was, and I'm not sure anybody can. If they said they could, I'm not sure I would believe them. We it's reasonable to assume that we tied up a lot of North Vietnamese assets because we were a pain in their butts. How actually destructive we were, I'm not sure. A couple of times, we got really lucky and did some real, real good stuff. <clears throat> one of those was prior, just prior to the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and following up that one that was quite successful, we, uh, with the boats went up to do Han Mat and Han May and Han Nu, which were islands sort of in the roads leading to the uh, Haiphong harbor and of course Haiphong harbor was sacrosanct <clears throat> let me tell you how sacrosanct they were the, when i arrived into nang green lieutenant jg and i said okay let's look at the intel let's you know, let's read let's look at the intel and so there was two dredges port of haiphong if they if they're out of action the port of haiphong silts up in 6 weeks so, well, this is easy. let's go get the let's go get the dredges. Oh no, can't touch the dredges. Never touched the dredges the entire war. Why is that? Well, I don't know, I think it's criminal, but I don't know why it is because it was you know it was our I think it had to do with the with the, the headquarters genius concept that... Which McNamara describes himself later on when he's trying to excuse all he did, all he did wrong, um, by thinking that you know, we were we were going to impo- increase our pressure incrementally to the point where Ho Chi Minh would say, "Okay, ouch, we're done." And so I think part of the incremental approach was to allow them to ha- continue to have access. To uh, Haiphong Harbor, and we would impose the the, the punishment elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, I I, I, I that's thinking doesn't make any that logic doesn't make sense to me. But it I, I can't think of anything any better. Yeah, uh, because that's where all the Soviet stuff came in, a lot of the Chinese stuff came in. And it was just terrible.
0: You know, I I um. So I wrote I wrote a book called leadership strategy and tactics and in that Mm -hmm. book I write about something called the the iterative decision-making process Mm -hmm. meaning Hey, we take a little step in this direction and then we see what the results are And if it seems like we get good results, we go a little bit further in that direction And if we see more good results, we go a little bit further in that direction if we see oh that didn't work the way We want it to we, we make adjustments and it's the way I always made decisions, you know, I always You know, I don't need to, I don't need to make a big giant decision. I can make a little one and I can make a little one, make adjustments. And then, you know, as I started reading a lot about McNamara, you know, you get this idea of this incremental approach. And I started thinking to myself like, hold on. Well, if I was McNamara, maybe I would have been thinking the same thing. I'm going to make these small steps. Why was McNamara's incremental approach Why did it turn out so bad compared to what I did my whole career, which was this iterative approach. They're basically the same thing. And it didn't take me very long of thinking about it to realize why, because the key component of me making a small decision is to pay attention to the feedback and make adjustments when it doesn't work. And what you can see with McNamara and Johnson, Is that they were getting feedback and they were just not paying attention to it. They weren't listening to it. They were just saying, no, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And they never paid attention to the feedback and they continued to take the same approach over and over again and it never worked.
1: Well, I couldn't agree more. I think that's astute. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand will. They didn't understand the will. And these guys are such compromisers. They just
0: didn't understand uh, the will. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think we're seeing that, you know, people ask me about the war in, o- in Ukraine right now, and it's a test of wills. And that's the thing. When you go to war, the only reason you're going to war is you don't know who has the stronger will. Because if you knew, you wouldn't go. Mm-hmm. If you look at someone and go, yep, they're going to go and they're never going to stop, then right. you say, hey, this isn't a good thing to engage in. And so who's got the stronger will in Vietnam? You know, we thought after the Battle of I Drang, like, oh, we killed 100 150 to one -hmm. we're going to beat them we got air power we're going to beat them we didn't realize that they didn't care if they lost 150 they didn't care if they lost one hundred fifty thousand. they didn't care if they lost a million well that statement
1: right there applied to ukraine the simple arithmetic of vietnam when when westmoreland every day at four o'clock at the infamous four o'clock follies would talk about body counts Mm -hmm. and the so-called strategy which was no strategy but was the closest thing I guess they had to a strategy, was attrition. Mm -hmm. And nobody ever stopped to look at the simple arithmetic that the the birth rate in Hanoi always exceeded the attrition rate in the South, ensuring an unlimited supply of manpower. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing, and right now, you know, the Ukrainians are brave as hell, but if if Putin's prepared to sacrifice all the Russians that, that it takes, which all indications are he will, He'll grind them down. They can't win. He'll kill. You know, we'll 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 fight to the last Ukrainian.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or and this is what we don't know. We don't know if the Russian population says, "Hey, you know what? I'm not sending my kid, or I'm not going to go." And if that happens, things could go the other way. History doesn't support that. That is true. The Russians just cinch
1: it up another notch
0: and the Russians know how to suffer.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, But you get in the end it's a test of wills that you don't know what the answer is Mm -hmm. You don't know who has the stronger will. I mean look the ukrainians obviously have an incredible will. It's their homeland It's their houses. It's their country. They're gonna have an incredible will but At the end of the day, you're gonna end up with this if you end up in attrition fight And we just the the russians can keep pouring bodies out. It's terrible
1: maybe what we ought to do is Take all his resources or put it and put them into into stockpiles and caches in various places So they'll invite the Russians in and let the K- ukrainians go out them with guerrilla well, activities because I, <laughs> I, I
0: I have been very surprised that the ukrainians didn't go into that already. Yeah, I mean they have well-trained Snipers mm-hmm. they could kill they could kill f- f- 100 Russians a day just without engaging them in any Attrition ground, you know uh, force on force Peer-to-peer combat well, it doesn't make sense to do that so They're gonna figure I mean it seems like they're gonna have to figure that out is We we can't beat them with numbers. We need to beat them with guerrilla warfare and and We'll see what they do be interesting
1: by the way back to the back to the um, Dredges and iPhone I went back to Hanoi before Americans were allowed to go back because I was working with a guy in Hong Kong, hell of a guy. And I was chairman of the, well, we built the first office building in Hanoi after the war, right next to the Metropole Hotel near the what year was upper that? house. This would have been, uh, geez, early 90s. Okay. Makes that, I have to think about that. but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, It was before Woodcock went there and did the, the whatever, no, that was late 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that was in the 70s. Yeah, so it would have been somewhere in the 80s, I think. Yeah, when I did that. Anyway, um, so I, I, I took a day off. By the way, Vietnamese at this time, this was, everything was still raw. Vietnamese were gracious as could be because, of course, they had won. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they could, they could afford to be. Mm-hmm. And, they were, and the young ones were interested in building what they subsequently built. But uh, during, I, during one of the days I said you gotta, you gotta excuse me, I gotta get a taxi and I gotta go take a drive to iPhone. I gotta see those dredges. <laughs> so I drove up there, there's still there's still all kinds of uh, bomb damage all over the place. I look over at this narrow gauge railroad. Narrow gauge railroad, that's where all this stuff was coming mm-hmm. down, a narrow gauge <laughs> railroad. So much of the stuff's coming because the roads weren't any good. Yeah. A couple of bridges were still damaged, but the nail gate rear, which was just, I mean, I I kept saying, how could they move all this tonnage? How could they move all this stuff south? And and if you were paying any attention at all, I mean, it's like, the story. I don't know, if somebody, I'd like to, if I could be here in a couple of more days, I would see Ron Bell, who's going to be here for the old frogs and things Mm that Bell Schultz does. And because he's reputedly the first seal that went into a tunnel, that went into a coochie tunnel. I don't know if this is a true story or not, but and, and supposedly Ron, Bell came out of that tunnel. He said, these guys prepared to live like this, we can, there's no way we're going to win. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah. laughs> and that would have been about
0: 66 or
1: 67, probably.
0: <sighs> so, um, so were the barges still there when you went there? Yeah.
1: There were, there were the two dredges. I mean, it's the same incredible. two yeah. <laughs> it was incredible. Anyway, so we so we we took them back to high and Hon May and Anu. So <clears throat> they were in the sort of the roads. So when we hit on and Anu and did some damage, I think that it, it provoked some kind of a retaliation. Now, what the retaliation was, I'm not sure whose whose uh, story I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh but they—they th- they were really—if uh, that—that's what led. You know, then after that came the Gulf of Tonkin incident.
0: Yeah, you say up here when yeah. we sent the nasties yeah. up there, knowing they'd get the job done quickly. These islands are in the direct path of the entrances to the harbor, and hitting them could have been considered a threat to the harbor itself. We came in fast and hit the targets hard and successfully when we finished North Vietnamese patrol craft came after us with a fury, chasing us back down toward Da Nang. Our boats outran them somewhere north of the 17th parallel. Those North Vietnamese boats that were chasing us that night were the ones that allegedly attacked the USS Maddox and the USS Turner Joy. And our attacks on them most likely triggered their strategy to engage the US in retaliation. What happened with us and the Turner Joy and Maddox on that night would result in the joint congressional Tonkin Gulf resolution which authorized President Johnson to escalate US military efforts in Vietnam
1: No young Jim Hawes would have not have attributed any nefarious motives to those decisions an older and more cynical Jim Oz would attribute it to selfish political reasons, so. And I, I wish I under, I wish I knew the truth.
0: <clears throat> so I'm going to read this section here. You say younger seals which I am one, cannot appreciate the atmosphere in those days, the frogmen and early seals were barely tolerated by the traditional Navy, and 34A was the most politically sensitive operation in the country, ignorance and disinterest in covert operations along with security compartmentalization made it inevitable that the Navy would appoint an officer in charge with no training, no experience, no interest in a vessel smaller than a destroyer. So you're dealing with this guy. And all that you were doing there, you say, but dealing with that was part of what I had to go through in Vietnam in order to be prepared for the Congo. There, I learned the clandestine art of plausible deniability and gathered the experience that led me to build and lead a mercenary navy for the CIA. I was incredibly lucky. I was being paid to do what, to what I would have done for free. Um this is just a little bit of information here you say while i was learning covert ops on the job in vietnam the cold war was heating up in africa what preceded my arrival in the congo was an extraordinary effort that included the talents of an american operator jordy mckay He did everything he was supposed to do and more. As a one man show, McKay was in the Congo to work with Five Commando as he made up the entirety of the US clandestine maritime paramilitary team. The agency had sent him there before they sent me and no contribution was more vital to mission success than McKay's. But through an event in the middle of a crucial battle, McKay made a judgment and acted on it and it was exactly the wrong decision according to the State Department. Because of that, the operation uh, the operation became available to me, but the groundwork for our mission success lay in actions McKay took at a place called Fitzy Baraka. Am I saying that right? Fizzy, F- Fizzy. Fizzy, so it's just like it's written, Fizzy Baraka. So now we're talking, it's 1965, the Congo battlefield had heated and cooled to a varying degree of ferocity over the pre- preceding several years. The Simba, Simba rebels, and these are communist rebels, were a ragtag bunch of untrained renegades more interested in pillaging and butchery than ideology or cause, but they began to receive the support of communist advisors and troops who had been training in Eastern Europe and China, and supplies of weapons and ammunition steadily increased. The US worried that Soviet bloc reinforcement and training the Simbas might actually turn into a coordinated fighting force. That notion began to drive policy. You talk about McKay, and by the way, um, I always have to say this. I'm reading chunks of this book. I'm reading a small percentage of the book. There's all kinds of details in here. There's an incredible story that's flowing through. We're hitting the highlights of it, but get the book so that you can get all these details. Some of the, you, you talk about McKay. McKay left the Navy in 1950 to start a salvage business in Cuba, and eventually he gets pressured out of Cuba by the communist, he gets put out of business. The person that put him out of business in Cuba was there was the ministry of the minister of industry, which is a guy named Che Guevara. That's the guy who put McKay out of business when he started this this uh, this uh, company down in Cuba. And after he gets forced out of Cuba, he goes back to the CIA because he was in the CIA before. So uh, McKay. And, and we'll get into who he links up with, a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Mad Mike Hoare. Uh, he's the commander of these five commando mercenaries. And these guys kind of join up. They get some vessels, um, the five commando starts, they start doing basically amphibious operations. Uh, there's this giant lake. How do you say that lake? Tanganyika. Taganika. So G- Taganika. Taganika. I'm going to brutalize that one.
1: 450 miles long, 50 miles wide. Taganika. Second deepest lake in the world. And
0: it's actually in between what two countries? It's between
1: uh, on the one side, it's Tanzania and Burundi and then
0: Eastern Congo. And, and it, it's, it divides those two countries. Mm-hmm. So they have, um, they're, they're running operations to try and suppress these rebels. And you say this, during the assault, McKay would make a significant difference in the war, albeit hit by making a conscious decision that would contra- contravene the CIA instructions he wasn't supposed to be in the fight the state department wanted no u.s fingerprints on the operation and plausible deniability was the purpose behind using five commando boat crews if a mercenary were killed in the congo so be it but if an american turned up shot and dead there particularly an ex-navy personnel it would be much more difficult to ignore and whitewash away mckay was the only american officer involved in the planning training and preparation of this operation and despite cia instructions ultimately the only one who unexpectedly Ended up engaged in combat so they're doing this big amphibious operation And again get the book There's really cool details about it. They do this amphibious operation to land troops on the beach They get resistance when they get on the beach They start kind of they can't really get off the beach for a while And they're pinned down and you say this as five commando forces took casualties. They became bogged down Around H hour plus three, the attack started to stall. These guys are short on ammunition. And over on the left flank of the of the landing beach, there was this church. And in the church, there was some snipers, apparently, that were really reaping havoc on the five commando guys. And so you say this, McKay went to the captain of the Irmonds, and the, this was the ship that they were using. A five commando mercenary under horse command and asked him to bring the boat around and also to get someone on the 75 millimeter recoilless perched on the stern but there was no response McKay face to face and under fire in the middle of a battle stared at a frozen captain who had gone gun shy without hesitation McKay took control of the ship himself he ordered the helmsman to, sh- to steer the airman's parallel to the beach until they were approximately 150 meters offshore and only 250 meters from the gun nest McKay lay, called for a dead slow course with the engine stopped and the Irmonds began taking direct enemy fire. McKay ran to the aft deck and got onto the giant 75 mm weapon. He had bore sighted and tested the rifle the day before so he could fire with accuracy. He loaded the recoilless, took aim, and fired the powerful weapon at the steeple where the hidden gunners continued to pin down the landing troops. His first shot was a bullseye. The heavy rounds inside of the recoilless struck the machine gun nest with a force that demolished the steeple. Two bodies were flung into the air like a pair of rag dolls. As the nest was splintered and blown apart, the gunners were silenced. Lieutenant Colonel Hoare began to plan a breakout that would take troops into the interior from Fizzy to pursue the retreating Simbas. He buried his five KIAs. The enemy count was 215. so this is like before you get there. And this guy, McKay, after this happens, he, he finds out that his father had died. His father was a cop, a, a New York P- NYPD detective. His father had had a heart attack. He goes home. When he gets home, it sounds like they say, hey, look, you are out there doing what you weren't supposed to be doing. And they kind of don't let him come back to the Congo.
1: The State Department wants you to, do, oh. wants you to be successful in your mission. But not break any rules mm-hmm. the cia wants you to be successful in your mission and not get caught <laughs> breaking any rules how did he get caught uh, it's my observation how did he get caught oh whore uh, my core was the the most uh notorious mercenary of the 20th century by far you hear about black jack shram and you know, some of these other guys they were nothing compared to Hor <clears throat> or sorry yeah they were nothing compared to Hor. Uh, among and and I don't like Hor but I think he was exactly the right guy for mm-hmm. the job and we worked together just fine I didn't like him because mm-hmm. to me he was too much of a <clears throat> prima donna and in and, and that's one example right there he invited two uh, American correspondents oh that's to right. this yeah and of course, that was a no-no, but it served him. It served him well, and, uh, and fortunately, they, they were old-style old correspondents because they kept their word on not disclosing anything about American presence. But uh, uh, it was enough to get so that mm-hmm. they, the State Department was able to find out, and so they uh, they just leaned on they leaned on uh, Africa division which would be more politically sensitive than the special operations division so so it was it was really interesting that the Africa division wanted some of them not all of them of course wanted to hammer him and the special operations division wanted to to, to, award, uh, him. to award him <laughs> <laughs> and in Bill Hamilton the old our old frog father yeah was very instrumental in in uh, protecting uh, Jordy, and um, so he went on, spent another you know what 30, 40 years, and he didn't retire till his early 80s. So, but uh, but not in Africa. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, meanwhile, as that's happening, you are you, you get orders. I think you get orders so that you can, you know, your next assignment is to take a platoon to Vietnam, but you're still in Vietnam at the time.
1: Yeah. I volunteered to, you have to, to take the first detachment to
0: the, to the Delta. So that call comes in your, you say, Hey, look, I'll go. And you say, Hey, can you send me a replacement? Because I want to get back and start training with my, yeah, it's a whole platoon. different type of operation. Right. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you say, can you send me a replacement? And BUPERS, which is the, the Bureau of Navy Personnel, this is sort of the nightmarish bureaucracy that anyone would think of, this big, giant organization that's, you know, doesn't think of people as people but as numbers and billets. So you say, can you send me a replacement? Well, they don't send you your replacement. So sorry, we can't. We just can't. We can't it's too do late. It. Yeah, can't, can't do it. it. It's
1: too late. So you wait. You're waiting. So I said, okay, I'll just get a half of a, a yeah. training session, whatever, you yeah. know.
0: But then your replacement finally shows up two replacements two replacements finally show up and you you know you're just hey welcome one of the guys I went through training with and, and you say, hey you know welcome here's what we're doing I, you say something along the lines of and you've got it in the book but you know I, I, I wish you guys could have gotten here a little earlier and the guy looks at you and goes I've, I haven't I could have come any anytime I've been totally free and you got <laughs> you got so <laughs> so frustrated. That you, uh, well, you, I,
1: it, I, it was the not, it was the cavalier attitude or the nonchalance or the whatever. that just, Jesus, it just it hit me at the exactly the wrong, <laughs> the wrong time. Just the fact that Bupers yeah, could have uh, sent uh, a replacement. Yeah.
0: Here you are getting, you're in war. You're getting ready to go back to war. I just need a replacement. And they just didn't do anything about it. And here's this guy going, yeah, I could have come months ago. It doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. And you got so pissed off yeah. that you called Bupers. Oh, I
1: picked up the phone and got right in those days. <laughs> Went Saigon switchboard, Honolulu switchboard, right to, right to Bupers. I, w- I, I said, my name is Hawes. My file number is 653959. I'm on a voluntary extension. I want out of this Navy right now. want a voluntary extension. Boom, in comes the set of orders. Goodbye. that was it I mean you you, you went back to San Francisco San Francisco mustered out and then uh, started making a slow uh, slow drive across the coast because by this time I'd cool off and said geez you love what you're doing what what the hell did
2: you do (laughs) I'm constantly telling people not to make decisions when they're emotional this is why because you're in the freaking teams
0: you have the best job in the world you get pissed off and so you say I'm going to get out Uh, you start driving across back towards the East coast. Um, at some point you get a call from one of your, one of your buddies. Well,
1: I'm already back on, I'm back on the, on the East coast. I'm back in little Creek.
0: So what are you doing? Are you just like going to the team? I'm
1: reacquainting some, uh, reacquainting with some old friends. How
0: long had it been? (laughs) How how long had it been since you, uh, (laughs) since you got out? Been when you showed back up at the teams? Oh it, like you just drove across country yeah a week or whatever
1: across, yeah well probably maybe a month because I stopped and stopped to see my folks
0: did and, you uh, and were you thinking ham's going to get back in
1: yeah, I thought well, you' know, what he is, yeah, sure I couldn't think of anything I'd rather do
0: yeah and it's and not uh, not that hard. I remember I was talking to Dick Thompson you know the sog guy and he, you know he had he was his officer green beret and and sog and I said was it I said was it hard to you know, become an officer? And he was like, no, we just signed up. And I go, was it hard to get selected for special forces? He goes, no, he just had to go. And I go, was it hard to get sock?" He said, no. And He's like, it was Vietnam. No one wanted to be doing <laughs> yeah, this stuff. Right. There was no waiting line yeah. at the door yeah, to, I to, do, to was, do any of this stuff. Yeah, all I had to do
1: was call Tarbox and Tarbox said would make it happen. So, so that it, was the plan. That was the plan. Then I get the call from Phil.
0: And what, what was Phil's
1: situation? Well, Phil was a plank owner in SEAL Team One. Phil Gaddis. Plank yeah, order. yeah, and he—not uh, his true name, of course—and um, Phil had been one of the first SEALs to go to Vietnam in '62 or whenever it was. Early, one of the first detachment that went. A handful of guys went mm-hmm. over. Phil was the officer in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really smart guy. Really good guy. Harvard guy. Harvard graduate. Uh, um, great physically. Good guy. And his wife was at least as smart as he was, and she was actually just as an aside. Um, <clears throat> when they made all the uh, when they made all the uh, uh, dependents leave Vietnam, they forgot Barbara was in Da Nang. So Barbara you know, kept quiet. They all kept, kept quiet. So Barbara stayed in Da Nang for quite a long time until <laughs> someone realized she was there. By the time she left, she could speak, read, and write Vietnamese, and she was a hell of an asset to have. Uh, but anyway. Um, yeah, so Phil uh, Phil had Phil was the only other SEAL officer with with uh swift boat experience. And he had been the year that I was there he had been he was ship sheep dipped in the agency and he was there, but he was doing other things. He wasn't in much involved in our operations. Um and he was getting out of the Navy, he had been in R in ROTC and his time was up. He's getting on the evening. He was going to go to the CIA career training program. So he called me. He called me and said, "Jim, he said uh, they want me to go to the Congo, and I'm starting the career training program, and Barbara's about to pop." <laughs> he said, "I really don't want to go, but I don't want to say I don't want to go. Are you interested?" And I said, "You mean I'll get paid?" <laughs> And he said, yeah, I said, let's, you know, let's do it. So Bill, and Bill Hamilton was the, was the chief of the maritime branch of the CIA.
0: And Bill Hamilton just, he was a frogman. Oh, what a and guy. And pilot and just like an he, absolute star. Everything.
1: Every, he's like, a, he, he was like, <clears throat> this is delicate, so I gotta be careful because I'm not sure you're now strongly I believe it myself, but in those days, officers knew they were going to make admiral. Mm-hmm. So was the team, the teams, the teams. That's why we survived, in my opinion. Because guys like Fane and Hamilton and so forth, and and what's his name from uh, Del Judas and so forth, they all did the things necessary to to keep the teams alive. And it wasn't about, when am I going to get my stars? Uh, Anyway, Hamilton, Naval Academy graduate, son of an admiral, naval aviator in Korea, and he says, "I want to be a frogman." <laughs> so he he comes and he is uh, he becomes U D U two, which is underwater demolition, which is in charge of the 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 the, the teams, the UDT teams, and the uh, I think beach jumpers or something else at the time, whatever. Anyways, he was the senior senior frog, um, <clears throat> and, he, and and he was uh, God. He had it all. He was big, handsome. <laughs> outgoing guy smart as hell I mean, he's you know, the kind of guy you needed to, to keep us alive basically which he helped do at op when the seals were formed he was in the right place at the right time and uh you know the east coast and west coast have stupid arguments about who in those days about who was the most important well they were all important but he was really important <laughs> okay so um um and now he so, was, so yeah so now he's he's head of the maritime branch and in, the, in the, CIA. The, maritime branch yeah. of the cia so so i get a call from bill and says come on up let's talk i said okay so i go up and he of course by that time he didn't have trouble checking me out as an individual he just wanted to know if i knew anything about swifts and i didn't know why but he you know he asked me some questions obviously he knew what i was talking about about swifts so that was it he said okay let's go you know get ready where you got to get out there right now so he takes me to see uh, a guy named Cheever, who was the head of special operations division, a retired Marine colonel, smart guy. Can you imagine? I go in and talk to this guy, and he's got to decide whether or not this kid is should go to the middle of the Congo all by himself <laughs> with all the weapons and cash that it takes to do it.
0: And you're 26 years old. I'm right uh, 25 at 25. That, or 26. Yeah,
1: I think I was 25 or 26. Whatever.
0: And he's got to make the decision. And you're you're out of the navy, so you're civilian. Oh at yeah, this point. I'm a civilian. Yeah, right.
1: And uh, so uh, you know, I pass that I pass that test, and uh, and then he says, uh, you, you know, you probably i to have some idea who you're working for. So I I go down to, uh, so they send me to uh, to uh, orientation course down in uh, outside of uh, Marana. Yeah, Marana. Yeah, yeah. at Marana, and uh, which was uh, uh, also a, a uh, a uh, training place for smoke jumpers, and it's also where they they train their kickers for Laos. The kickers for Laos, most of them had been smoke jumpers. Okay, so I went down there and got uh, got you know got sort of an orientation program, and then I came back and went around headquarters to get what I needed. And uh, I was, what a wonderful thing it was! Like, boy, when you had an emergency. It was like everybody said, "Hooray, we got an emergency!" <laughs> everybody woke up and couldn't, you know, couldn't do enough for you. It was, it was really, it was extraordinary. So, yeah, so I, I went out there and said, "Dick Johnson will meet you. He's going to be your boss, and you'll find out what you need to know." So you say, uh, <laughs> "I arrived in the
0: capital, of Leopoldville." on a commercial UTA flight from Paris with 2500 in cash stuffed in my socks and a quantity of morphine-filled syringes in my bag. I knew there would inevitably be casualties, and CIA supply and logistics made sure I, I had what I needed to help get the job done. <laughs> You're just rolling in there. What was your cover?
1: Well, when I got on the plane, I was Department of the Army. Excuse me. Department of the Navy or something. When I got off the plane, I was Department of art. I don't. I can't even remember because nobody ever asked me. No one cared. <laughs> nobody cared. Yeah, nobody cared. Uh, but I had one. <laughs> it was flimsy, but I had one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. Then you leave Leopoldville for Albertville, which is now called Kalimi. Yeah. And what's Leopoldville called now? Kinshasa. Kinshasa right. Kinshasa. Yeah. Um. You say this, I began to learn everything in this operation to be different. My SEAL training and Vietnam experience included highly skilled professionals and state of the art resources immediately at hand. In the military had also been accustomed to a formal structure of working with other troops and adhering to a coordinated strategy. And where in Vietnam and where Vietnam may have been the precedent for this new practical reality, this was a remote enterprise where I went from high tech to no tech. There were no historical how-tos and no one with previous experience to give me direction or assistance. Once in Albertville, I was completely on my own. No one was there to meet me. No crew existed and few available boats were in need of substantial repair. In this remote corner of Africa, the CIA just expected me to handle things on my own and go out and get the job done. That's exactly what I did.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Dick was, Dick was terrific. He was a World War II Marine. Uh, Would have been. This is
0: Dick Johnson. Yeah, Dick Johnson. And what was
1: his position? He was the head of all military, uh, uh, paramilitary activities in the Congo, working for Larry Devon, who was the chief of station. And he had been a chief of station himself. He was a really experienced guy, and just a just a terrific fellow. And he, but but he basically said, "Look, after he decided I was, he was going to keep me because I had to go. I'd have his." Uh, stamp of mm-hmm. approval in order to stay because he could have sent me home um, after uh, you know, he just said look I'll help you any way I can but it's not much I can do it's 2,000 miles across the jungle over there you just got to figure it out so yeah. hey, what you, you know, more could the guy, one yeah. more guy <laughs> asked for yeah, gee that's tough <laughs> <laughs> oh please <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh,
0: here's your intro to five commando you say this I knew these guys were five commando mercenaries lieutenant colonel mad Mike horse troops probably the most famous mercenary in modern history the colorful mad Mike had collected a hodgepodge of experienced soldiers, pretenders, and combat castoffs the way others collected stamps. He had uh, had ability and charisma, and he never shied away from an opportunity to inflate his reputation. His exploits in Africa are said to be the inspiration for Daniel Carney's novel and film, The Wild Geese, which starred Richard Burton and Roger Moore. Over the next few months, I would learn firsthand of the vicious nature of this five commando band of cutthroats the way they almost revered a code of duplicity instead of loyalty, and how their ruthless tactics adhered only to a pale version of military standard. These all-white paramilitaries from former British colonies in Africa, Europe, and the UK were definitely not your well-disciplined combat troops. They had little respect for treatment of civilians and property, particularly safes, and they would demonstrate their shady conduct many times while I worked with them. And you've you got a story in here about <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of how you formed your quick reputation with them. They, they were trying to get into a safe mm-hmm. and they were trying to blow it open and they didn't know what they were doing. Um, and you helped them blow the safe open. And then when they talked about, you know, how they were going to divide what was in it, you were like, hey, I'm not here for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you know what, what Intel did you have on five commando when you showed up there?
1: what you just read. That's it. <laughs> These guys are just running <laughs> but, around see, causing they, mayhem. They would sign contracts, and I can't remember, 6 months contracts for them, and the quality of it deteriorated over time because it was a nasty environment. And, I mean, if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't the Simba's, it was uh, hemorrhagic dinghy fever or you know, or whatever. So the quality of the people mm-hmm. who, were, who were signing contracts deteriorated over the time. So by the end, it was real dregs I mean not that the, yeah there were some real dregs mm-hmm. there, were always, there were a few amongst all those who were first class who were first class soldiers but uh, not many and the ones that were, were 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 when I say first class soldiers they had the they had the soldier
0: skills but yeah because otherwise they'd be yeah, still in the yeah, yeah, British yeah, Army or yeah. whatever
1: mentality was uh,
0: yeah whatever so uh you, you, now you're, you're starting, you have to, you, you got to work with them. I mean, that's just the way it is. Well, the leadership lesson, thing, imagine this, they were
1: mercenaries. I mean, the first thing, the first thing they did when they hit a new town was half of them peeled off to get the missionaries and half peeled off to get the banks. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they were mercenaries. I didn't pay them. Uh, they were five commando. I wasn't, I wasn't in their chain of command um they didn't have to take any orders for me so i had to make sure but i had to get them to take orders for me mm-hmm. um if there was any discipline to be done i had to say what needed to be done and not and, and, it, and it would get done but i had no mm-hmm. no official position in any of this so um i can't think of, i couldn't have been better prepared than for having and seal mm-hmm. uh, to do it. I really couldn't. And when I got in, in where I what really helped was instinct, instinct that was honed in training and in Vietnam because you know when I get when I finished Harvard Business School, I had unlearned instinct. It took me a long time to realize how what a mistake that was mm-hmm. and to get back to trust in my instincts which were pretty good. <laughs> so.
0: this is a kind of a cool. Along those lines, you say the event that it contributed more to any other toward the success of the force naval Congolese. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was the
1: recruitment uh, for, you know, I don't absolutely know sure. That's just what I
0: named it. Okay, cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. I don't know if the grammar is perfect or not.
0: <laughs> uh, was the recruitment of five commandos, regimental Sergeant major, Samuel jock Cassidy. He had trained every five commando mercenary in the country and was a hardened soldier of fortune, a veteran of Congo and mercenary warfare. The key to his real value was the personnel files he held in his head, acquiring Cassidy with his knowledge and assessment of the troops meant that I might be able to recruit the best of the mercenaries, and if I could do that, I'd assemble a navy with the capabilities to accomplish the mission. Cassidy was older than I was, and I knew him as a murderer and a plunderer with a hair trigger that often led to violence. He was tough, mean tough. And the word on him was that he had racked up a catalog of savage acts that had earned the fear of every mercenary working in the Congo and many other parts of Africa. Instinctively, I addressed him as if he were a UDT SEAL trainee, which was a direct line back to the year I'd spent as instructor, thank you Captain Lee.
1: Instinct, instinct.
0: You say, uh, we're gonna build a navy, I told him, with or without you, but if you come on board together, we'll make an effective force in this war. I forced him to stand as if he were a subordinate officer and he stared at me with a lacerating glare. I know you're a mercenary, I continued, but I will not bid against Lieutenant Colonel Hoare for your services. I was in my element and felt as though I had the upper hand in this conversation because I had a desirable card to play, so I sweetened the pot. What I will do, I told him, is see to it that you are commissioned as lieutenant and if you are as good as you are reputed to be, and I believe you are, I'll make you captain. Cassidy nodded in agreement. And you kept the army ranks, you go into that a little bit. Then you say weeks later, uh, you guys had a conversation about this. Cassidy finally gave me his impression of this initial meeting. Commander, he said, I trained every mercenary in five commando and no one, including Lieutenant Colonel Hoare, ever talked to me the way you did on that first day. I didn't know whether to join you or kill you. Luckily for us both, I signed on. Once again, the old adage, better lucky than good, Proved valid, whatever his reasoning. We were now working as a team. We set our sights on assembling a Congo Navy.
1: So, thank you, Salinsky and Blaze and all those instructors. I can't tell you, it was, you know boy. Why didn't this, you know? Um, yeah, I can't tell you. It just turned out right. I said, I guess, again,
0: God wanted.
1: <laughs> God wanted to be a good frogman. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh,
0: you give background on Lieutenant Colonel Hoare. You say his transition to adventure came out of unlikely circumstances like many people who have lived a bland life. Hoare's personal history might seem obscure and nondescript right up to the point where he first gained no- notoriety and that happened in the Congo. He was born in India, served in L- Lord Mountbatten's staff in World War II in the British Army in South Asia, had been educated as a, as a chartered accountant, hardly rigorous. Prerequisites for a mercenary commander, but through a friend, he was introduced to one of the Congo's most powerful f- political figures, um, Moise Chombi, yeah. mm-hmm. the governor of the breakaway Katanga province. And once he was in, he took full advantage. Some of his critics would label Hoare a puppet, which is far from accurate. Hor's ability to act his role was crucial to commanding a mercenary army, particularly because he had no formal judicial recourse structure. What he did was have good fundamental military skills, and that meant he could recognize those same skills in others and employ them, and employ them accordingly. He masterfully played above the riffraff, the role of a British gentleman officer, tapped to lead mercenary troops in overcoming a communist threat. His theater of war was a small but important strategic part of the Cold war, world. Cold war world. He had an acute sense for both strategy and tactics and I saw him juggle cold-blooded killers, African leaders and US Embassy employees with a aplomb while still focusing on chasing down and destroying the rebels.
1: Yeah, I, told him I had great respect for him. Mm-hmm. I didn't like him, but I had a lot of respect What was for it him. you didn't like about him? His, I didn't like his ego mm-hmm. I don't you know ego guy you got, Ego's always gets yeah. you in difficulty yeah <laughs> some <laughs> so way shape or form and, and uh, that, other than that no I, yeah. I think and he uh, he very resented me uh, because he he didn't want the Navy to be separate from his command oh and I knew I, and, and I knew that Dick Johnson would back me up as long as I was doing the right things for the right reason And I uh, and he wasn't going to bug Dick Johnson. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, uh, so I I say, look, my my primary reason to be here is interdiction. I said, you watch, we'll support you. You get all the support you could possibly want. But 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 my primary mission here is interdiction, and that's I don't need any help. Thank you. Mm And he had a hard time with that for a little while, but it ended up working out just fine. Mm-hmm. We would meet every day about four o'clock to talk about the next, next days or next upcoming operations and so forth. Then what we did. We supported him very well, and, and that problem went away.
2: But,
0: you start scrounging up, but he boats. never liked me because mm-hmm.
1: I'm you know because his ego wouldn't. Ha- allow he must have been. Happen.
0: He must have been what 50 years old. I mean, he was in World yeah, War II, he, had, he, had he must be, have been yeah, 40, mm, 50 yeah, years old. Yeah, and you yeah, were 26-year-old, yeah, yeah, yeah. little little punk-ass frog man. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He had actually had his wife with him for much of his campaigning, and she had a baby along the way. She hmm. was, was great-looking and tough as could be. Hmm. Uh, he's written a couple of books that are good reads.
0: Oh, I'll check yeah, those yeah, out. you should
1: do that. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so now you start scrounging up boats. Uh, you got the... Called the Kivu? Am I saying that right? The Kivu, and it was uh, a—you liked it because it was built in 1910. But you liked it because you could um, basically help recruit. Oh,
1: it was a great recruiting tool because it—it was a barracks, and we made it a barracks vessel, so they could eat—they could eat good and sleep clean, and Mm -hmm. did their own cooks. They were like those five command those army guys, and five command army guys. Oh, John, I lived terrible. So in that sense, it was a hell of a recruiting tool. So, with with that plus Cassidy's knowledge of the individuals, that was another reason Hor got a little resentful. I oh, took yeah. away that his. Must, that guys. must have really pissed him <laughs> <laughs> off.
0: And yet, you didn't pay him. You didn't pay Cassidy. So, what was? How was he making money? I mean, oh, is he was
1: paid five. They were in five commandos, so they got paid their five commando money plus all the money they could uh, they could pillage or they could mm-hmm. plunder.
0: But he still kept getting paid by Five Commando, mm-hmm. even yeah, when he worked yeah, for you? Because you were, all, were all, you're all part of one big mission?
1: They were all Five Commando, still Five Commando, but they were under my, mm-hmm. my uh, jurisdiction.
0: Or Who was paying or Five Commando?
1: Well, ostensibly the Congolese government.
0: B- getting funneled through American yeah, cash. exactly.
1: That's what I'm saying. He wouldn't do anything to buck yeah. Dick Johnson, which means he was bucking Larry Devlin, the chief of station. And he and Devlin, Devlin liked him, mm-hmm. but Devlin called him a— uh, a uh, oh, what do you call it? Gentleman um, is a British it would be a British expression.
0: Uh, a British expression for
1: a, 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 a gentleman adventurer. And that's oh, not the exact yeah. term, but it's yeah. close. An adventurer. And they stayed. They were friends till uh, till Devlin died. Huh. Yeah.
0: So he didn't want to rock the boat with you. No, he wouldn't rock. The boat. He knew who he was writing his paychecks. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And and those had to be some fat paychecks. I, mean, I have no idea. But the U.S. government doesn't Never asking.
1: Around. Yeah, never asking. I have no idea. Plus, uh, you know, as I said, he pretended to be above the fray, but Cassidy and John Peters, who if anybody was meaner than Cassidy, it was John Peters.
0: What did, what uh, you, what did you heard about Cassidy? Like you're calling him a murderer and all this stuff in the book. Like what, what did you heard about him?
1: That's what I'd heard about him. Just, he, <laughs> he, he would just kill people. Yeah, I mean, he when he got drunk. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, he wouldn't do it unless he was drunk. Okay, uh, but but he had a bad liver. <laughs> so, but anyway, th- he he in fact he was away on uh, medical leave when I arrived. Right. So that's what I heard about him, and so I got word to him as soon as he came when I heard he was coming back to come and see me. So before. Hoare could get his hands on him or do anything. And by, and by, I'd also, some, I can't tell you now how I realized, came to realize that the thing he wanted was to be an officer, be, get commissioned, be the, whatever. And he had never could do that under Hoare because he's too valuable a to is as the regimental sergeant major. So...
0: But it's interesting like you're wanting to be commissioned as an officer in five commando a random mercenary group, right? Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, there's no pension that comes with it or anything. There's, that's right uh, You say here I'm fast forward a little bit uh, things were beginning to fall into place our primary focus now had to be on the boats We had a few smaller boats exaggeratedly termed PTs, which were operated from the Irmonds, the 250 ton lake vessel that we inherited from McKay and commandeered for the Navy. We called the Ermans the mothership. She was the command operations vessel for the, for the PTs and armed with captured Russian weapons, including a 12.7 millimeter Russian machine guns and a US 75 millimeter recoilless rifle. Uh, the Irmans had radar on it. You talk about that. Um, then you say here Peter Jessup of the National Security Staff wrote a memo to President Johnson stating that a more substantial pocket Coast Guard is necessary. He approved the purchase, transport, and by air and armament and manning of six additional boats, two Swifts, and four Sea Crafts. So they are getting word that you need more support over there. Oh, yeah. But was, that
1: was all at the beginning. I mean, uh, again, Hamilton and his deputy Tom Kleins, who was a hell of a guy, and the guy who the Cubans totally trusted. I mean, we get into that story. Mm-hmm. You, you learn the new definition of the word trust. Um, anyway, so Hamilton and uh, got these mm-hmm. got these Swifts and uh, went down to to Seward Seacraft in Louisiana, where they were built, and got the got the Cajuns to. <laughs> Come on board and as only Hamill could sell it. You know, we, basically we cut the superstructure Cut cut the bow cut the superstructure cut the whole longitudinally threw everything into Globemasters, flew it into uh, this you narrow this strip next to Kalimi There's a nail grade railroad Put it on that, put it over to the port, brought the Kunasses out, or the, sorry, the Cajuns. <laughs> uh, you can call them Kunasses if you're their buddy. <laughs> and and uh, brought the Cajuns out, and the Cajuns, I'm not sure where the Cajuns even knew where they were, because it was hot and humid and everybody was black. But <laughs> whatever it was, they, they did their, they, they were terrific. I mean, these guys work like hell. Have a cold beer at the end and laugh at the end of the day and up the next morning. Everyone thought it'd take a month. It took them like a week or two to, and, and to get the boats. Put w- were together. those that's two boats, great. those
0: were t- two boats were, those were the ones that had been used, had in, been used in, yeah. in the anti-Castro yeah, yeah, maritime raids. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they they take these boats, that's just, and you you go into the details in the story, but um, wh- wh- when you talk about Kleins, um, you know, he said here. Well, first of all, why? When you talk about Kleins' and, and his relationship with the Cubans, what was that relationship based on?
1: Uh, all the uh, anti-Castro stuff out of Miami.
0: They had just mm-hmm. they yep. had just been working together.
1: Yeah. yeah. They, um, they trusted him. I mean, they didn't even know where they were going.
0: And and these guys, these Cubans get basically turned over to you. Yeah, and, and you say here, clients would turn the Cuban contingent over to me with a message. These men are tough, respect, tough, resourceful, and brave, and take pride in their performance, but above all else, they're loyal. Chavez is a proven leader, and the men believe in him, so there will be no discipline problems. Over the years, we have developed a trusting relationship based on shared experiences, and I am assigning these bonds of trust and friendship over to you. When he endorsed the, the transferred expectations to me, I received a team prepared to work unconditionally under my command, no questions asked. You're all set, clients told me. Now don't fuck it up. <laughs> <You're> exactly right. <laughs> so you had these Cuban Americans yeah. that this is after the Bay of Pigs, all that had happened, and they're, they had fought Castro, they'd fought communism. They're now basically in America, mostly in Florida. They get this opportunity to go to Some freaking
1: have, a couple of were pigs and had been in prison Who <laughs> were liberated with the tractors, you know,
0: so they d- They it's get they get put together. All right. You want to go fight the communists? We got a We got a spot for you yeah. It's in Congo, Africa, and they say hell. Yeah, let's go
1: I mean those guys I cannot tell you we did not have one single discipline problem We didn't have any other kind of these guys were so professional So. Uh, it, it you know, I, I like it to my boat crew in training. I, I had such a boat crew. I just had to not fall out of the boat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know what's interesting? I was, <laughs> these I was,
1: Cubans were almost the same thing. They were I was talking really to good. a friend of mine
0: yesterday. Yeah. Who's a as long Q- as I had him. Yeah. A friend of mine yesterday who's a Cuban-American who mm-hmm. came over on the boats. Mm-hmm. And he said his you know his mom and dad, his dad wanted to come to America. Mm-hmm. His mom was like, hey, it's not that bad here. I got my family here. Mm-hmm. We're going to stay and finally they started taking they started taking the cuban military aged males mm-hmm. and saying you're going to go to africa and fight for communism and when he when the mom heard that she said we're out and they came to america mm. so the, that's how much they like number one they were willing to sacrifice everything to get away from yeah. communism yeah. um and also the fact that the cuban communists were exporting fighters to go overseas it was really interesting that I, yeah that i had this conversation yesterday mm-hmm. with a guy who's like oh yeah that's one of the reasons we left is mm-hmm. my mom didn't want me to get sent to africa to fight for communism nope not happening when i started to write this
1: book which is well, I, re- I really wrote most of it 25 years ago because i didn't want to you know how you get, yep. the older you get, the smarter, tougher, faster, stronger you were, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was trying to avoid that. And um, I went to the Swiss embassy in Washington, which is where they were had whatever they call a representative thing of the Cubans. And uh, I met a Cuban guy who was the first secretary, very bright, very articulate, whatever. And I said, look, I'm going to write this book. It's, you know, you, there's a lot of you guys in this. Um, I said I'd like to talk to the guy who was in charge, who at this point was on the Politburo of uh, in in Havana. And I said, uh, he said, I think that's. I said, I like you know, I, I, I want to put your side of the story in. And he he thought that was just a great idea, so he got a hold of those guys, but they wouldn't cooperate. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, I'll with you. Mm-hmm. That was it. But
0: um, you talked a little bit about these guys with the the. Uh, uh, showing up with those boats. The, you, you talk about a guy named Joe Bresch um, who, who showed up, engine man, <laughs> shows up with the Cajun builders. This is just like a crazy story. Oh, these the guys, whole were, thing. yeah. Uh, Bill Bain, an old frogman, shows up. He's another one of these guys. He was,
1: he, Bill Bain could do, he was a World War II guy, another one of the World War II guys. He could do anything. I mean, he was, you know, talk about the utility player. God, the guy was going do anything. So, yeah, that, that was all, all part of the team that Ham, Hamilton assembled, you know, to mm-hmm. sort of help make me look good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> when interviewed for this book, Brouchard, and that's the guy who's running the, the Cajuns, mm-hmm. about the job his crew did, the CIA had apparently expected the reconstruction would take them two or three months to complete. He and his team did it in a month. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm not going to brag. Uh, he said, I'm going to brag. We were expert at this stuff. We built them from the keel up. I worked on the boats when I first went to uh, Seward, and we knew every piece of the boat. We knew what we were fooling with. The Cajuns slipped into the country undetected, black in, black out in the vernacular of the CIA. And there you go. These. You know,
1: uh, Seward, of course, died, and he sold it, and his company's called Swift Ships or something right now. And I tried to get a hold of those guys. Cause I thought, boy, this they they'd love this because these are their sons are probably working in the shipyard, yeah, you know, yeah. grandsons, whatever. No, I never got a reply. Never got a reply.
0: Huh. Yeah. They might reach out to you now. <laughs> uh, the Swifts were powered by high-performance Detroit Diesel GM V1271 engines that were extremely reliable as were the inboard outboard gasoline engines on the little PTs but maintenance and repair requirements were inevitable. Locally, the capabilities to perform that kind of work just didn't exist. Bill Hamilton looked to the teams for support and he knew the right person for the job, Renee Goff, known as Gooch. When Hamilton was the commander of Underwater Demolition Unit Two, At Naval Amphibious Base in Little Creek, Virginia, Gooch served as a frogman with a specialty as an engine man. He stayed in that post until his retirement when he left Virginia Beach and headed for an idyllic Caribbean spot in St. Thomas with his wife and four children. They had all sailed down to the Caribbean on a 57-foot retired oyster boat, a type of vessel known as a Chesapeake Bay Skipjack, which he had converted into a floating family residence. They had endured hurricane-force winds, a rejected sanctuary landing in Haiti by Papadoc's paranoid, Papa paranoid regime, and the impasse of the doldrum in the Sargasso Sea before pitching up for a couple of years on an idyllic island living aboard a sailboat, fishing and enjoying being a family again. Then the CIA came calling about a one-of-a-kind mission in the Congo, ever the dedicated frogman, Gooch said, Gooch could not say no to his old commander. This veteran old frog would provide age and experience because at 26 I was decidedly short on both. He was the kind of guy who could do anything. A good sailor, a brilliant engine man, and a confident and selfless friend. Gooch had the perfect demeanor for the job and when he arrived in the Congo, he made an immediate impact on the smooth running of our operations. That was a terrific guy, wow.
1: I wasn't allowed to, you know, when, when he died, I, uh, Cassie and I had to, pound, pound, had, had to hammer together a, a casket and then wrapped him in uh, heavy sailcloth cloth and managed to find a cool spot until I could get a plane over to get his body out to get him back to mm-hmm. Leopoldville. I was never allowed to speak to his family. <clears throat> the agency took care of him, of course. <clears throat> but I was never allowed to speak to him until about the time this, this thing came out. And we've become, you know, friends and so forth since. And I've never forgiven myself for obeying that order. Uh, wasn't the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I understand the reasoning behind it, but uh, it wasn't the right thing to do. Anyway, it wasn't the right thing for me to do. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, he was a, he was a, just a remarkable guy and a hell of a friend and uh, helper and uh, advisor and He got along with everybody. The mercenaries all liked him. The Cubans adored him. Uh, Yeah, he was a great guy. And he could, uh, again, he could fix anything. Mm -hmm. I guess if you can take a skipjack tuna, turn it into a living quarters, you can do anything. He sure could.
2: (laughs) And keep your
0: wife happy while you're doing it. That's double impressive. You say here, when I first learned that the Cubans would be coming to train the five commando mercenaries, I realized there might be a potential problem. The mercenaries had a range of motivations for being in the Congo, some were strictly there for money, being paid for professional soldiering, but others were perverted, so perverted and deranged that they were just there because. because they wanted to kill Kafirs, the pejorative South African term for blacks. Fighting in the Congo conflict enabled them to do this and get paid for it. Because some of the Cubans were dark complexioned, I needed to make sure that before they arrived, they they would be allowed to have a smooth introduction into the equation. I approached Jock Cassidy. Jock, these Cubans are professionals. They've been fighting a real adversary, not a bunch of ganja hyped up teenage soldiers, and they know what they're doing. After allowing Cassidy to acknowledge this, I proceeded. And some of the Cubans have dark complexions, so I'm holding you responsible. There better not be any trouble. Cassidy's reply was filled with the perfect mercenary rationale. No problem, Commander. They ain't Kaffirs; they're Cubans. And so our operation rolled on, fueled by a commitment to racial harmony.
1: <laughs> that was such a funny incident. Don't worry, Ka- don't worry, Commander. They ain't Kaffirs; they're Cubans. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Lord, life, huh, people, <sighs> Jesus.
0: <laughs> um, you, you, I'm gonna fast forward, again. there's so many good, great details in this book. Um, Get the book, you say here, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit, on December 30th, Chavez, so Chavez is your lead guy yeah. of the Cubans that came, and he's basically the- Extraordinary. Extraordinary yeah. leader yeah. of these Cubans, mm-hmm. and he's out running operations. Yeah. On December 30th, Chavez reported coming across a boat on the lake. They maneuvered Lobo One. These are some of the again, I'm fast forwarding, but these are the vessels that they they gave them the vessel's name. Lobo One in a circle around the small boat to take advantage of the moon to illuminate it. The ship's log notes that it was a boat with an outboard motor, a definite sign of a rebel vessel. Chavez ordered a high firing and immediately the boat attempted to get away. Lobo wanted in a pursuit, and instead of firing over their heads, the crew took aim at them for real, firing several rounds. They approached the boat slowly and found that everyone on board had jumped into the lake and was trying to swim away. Chavez ordered a slow-speed chase, dodging the rebels through the water until they tired out Lobo's Lobo One's crew fired rounds into the water just to scare the swimmers as Chavez recorded. They finally captured the rebels and brought them on board. The Cubans were motivated by a general hatred of communism, but they also perceived early on in their recruiting that something was happening in the Congo that related to their Cuban problem. They would soon find out for certain. Rumors circulated throughout Miami that communist Cubans were fighting in the Congo, but no one knew for sure if it was true or not until my Navy crew confirmed it. Um, Here's another just I mean, you're you're in all you got leadership challenges all over the place down here. Here's fast forward a little bit as well. After midnight, there was a loud banging on my hotel room door. Even though half asleep, I instinctively picked up my Walther PPK from the night table and went reluctantly to the door. It's never good news at that hour. I eased the door open. A severely ineb- inebriated Jock Cassidy stood swaying in the hallway. Behind him, the tall, gangly Dern was quaking with fear. The color had drained from his face, and he was so pale with fright that he almost seemed to glow in the dark. I shook my head at the sight of them, and Casty immediately blurted out, Commander, this arsehole insulted me in front of the men. I thought about Casty's foul temper, and having witnessed his vengeful brand of discipline with the, and this is another story that you tell in here about how he handled somebody that had stolen something, I knew he was capable, capable of meeting out irrational punishment. Casty glared at Dern, I'm going to kill him. He said his eyes flared with an alarming rage that continued to build and then I'm gonna burn down the Navy <laughs> I stepped back in my hotel room held the door open a little wider as Cassidy turned to enter I motioned to Dern to stand fast I needed to diffuse the tension and do it quickly before Dern did something really stupid My instincts told me that I needed to maintain a casual atmosphere in this situation. Come on And I said tell me what happened and let's talk about it So what, what was Dern's role over there?
1: Well, they uh, when we found out that uh, that Che was in the area, they decided they needed a, a real intel guy. So they came they came out and made he was chief of base, which made him my boss, in effect. But he didn't he didn't get in, he didn't interfere with anything I was doing. But he was there supposedly to <clears throat> to try to collect intel, and uh, I. I, I, I be careful about his name, because he's, he's a bit of an Israel name is a bit of a name in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So it tells you more about headquarters mentality. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so uh, so he would—I never drank with the mercenaries. I did one time. I drank with them one time. I competitively shot with them one time. So I made them think I could hold my liquor, which I can't. Uh, and— Again, I, God wanted to make me a successful frogman, and I really hit what I was shooting at, pointing at those days. So I never did it again. Never right. let him. S- I, I was friendly. Yep. I
0: just kept a little distance. Kept
1: distance. Kept distance, and I did everything through jock. Because I, for some reason, I had jocks total. Total. In the Congo definition of the word, <laughs> <laughs> total loyalty uh but but uh what's his name Dern Dern um he would go to the to the watering hole and drink with these guys stupid I mean they're 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 screwed up anyway they got weapons on them and they got alcohol what the hell's (laughs) the definition of trouble (laughs) So (laughs) I never not one time did I ever do that he would go do it and i guess maybe he thought he was collecting information or mm-hmm. something i don't know but he, he was just drinking as far as i was concerned so uh you know this is he insulted cassidy in front of the men or Cassidy thought he insulted right. in front of the men whichever it was so then they come back to the come back to the to the to the hotel du lac and there they are so uh shooed dern away and um Cassidy came in. He said, "And he say, repeat himself. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to burn down the navy." and I said, "Jock, I don't give a shit if you kill him, but why would you want to burn down the navy? We worked so hard to build, you know, trying to yeah, do def- you know, yeah. anyway." So that worked. And over the course of the next three or four hours till dawn, and he sobered up a little bit. And then he, he I, I said, "Look, I'll keep, I'll keep Dern away from the navy. Don't worry. We will just get on and do our stuff." So okay, that that was agreeable to him. And so he staggered back to the Navy to sleep it off, and I went down to Dern's room. That dumbass had kept drinking. Can you believe that? And I said, you know, I said, I don't know whether we can keep you alive. I said, I I don't know for sure. I said, we'll try, but my advice to you is get out of here. He said... Yeah, that's good advice. <laughs> so that's when I had the story. That's when I had the talk with Gooch about how we were going to have to kill Cassidy if it came down to it. It was either Cassidy or, or Dern. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's that. That's what that. Yeah, story you came up. With you
0: you and Gooch came up with a whole plan. Yeah, whole you plan. were going to have to kill yeah, Cassidy because yeah, yeah. you couldn't obviously let yeah. him kill this American. Yeah,
1: yeah. Fortunately, uh, fortunately, uh, Dern took off and. It was all dissipated. He,
0: but. he took your advice, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Luckily, he put his ego in check. Because there's people that are like, no, I'm not leaving, yeah. it's on him. Oh, yeah, no. That's how people end up getting killed.
1: He had an ego, but he also had a sense of <laughs> saving his own ass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, fast forward a little bit here. Again, That's a, but just you're just dealing with like mayhem. I oh. mean, this is just mayhem. Yeah. And you're just keeping it together. It's a 26-year-old yeah. lieutenant, G, yeah. former lieutenant JG, now, <laughs> oh, yeah, the reason I'm now command- admiral of the fleet. No,
1: well, no I'm, I'm, they, call, they started calling me commander. And I thought, okay, I'll be commander. Fair enough. Why not? That made me equal to whore, by the way, in terms of rank. Mm. So that also worked. It was totally accidental. but
0: Did you look out. old for your age or not really?
1: Uh, well, you, there's a picture in yeah, the book. True. You th- tell me. I <laughs> thought you look. I, you look. You
0: look like maybe. You don't yeah. look like a full commander, though. Oh no, no, way. Yeah. no uh, way. Fast forward a little bit here. You say I was back at base monitoring the radio, and I suddenly heard Ricardo Chavez's voice shout, "Attack!" The distinct pop, pop, pop of machine gun came crackling through the radio. Immediately dis distinguishable from the mundane static and clutter. My ear was attuned to the prospect of a firefight and the hair on my arms began to prickle as that unmistakable sound cut through the feeble reception of our rudimentary equipment. The Swifts were out on the lake and in some shit. The only question was how deep. The boat crew opened fire with the first semi-automatic Soviet AK-47 weapons we'd capture captured in the previous raids. That was one of our ways we hurt them, using their own guns against them. If the boats got really close during the melee of the firefight, the AKs would come in handy. Lobo One was armed for combat, carrying 50 cal machine guns mounted amidships, port, starboard, and aft, plus a shoulder-fired 57 millimeter recoilless rifle on the gun tub above the cabin. A concussive barrage erupted as five enemy vessels returned fire bullets screaming between boats Toledo recalled the events vividly as soon as we made contact one boat separated from the group in hindsight we realized it was obviously to distract us leaving us to contend with the other four boats that were firing intensely the fifth boat that cut away was stationed a short distance behind the others not firing a shot just waiting as if trying to decide whether to re-engage or depart then their decision made the fifth boat suddenly swung around and opened up again in a hail of bullets that covered their escape as it sped East across the black waters toward the enemy refuge of Tanzania I debriefed Chavez and it was clear to both of us that there was something very curious about that fifth boat the manner in which it had escaped suggested it sheltered someone or something very important a VIP we thought otherwise the remaining enemy boats would not have put up such fierce resistance Their previous behavior had consistently been cut and run. We had already discovered that Castro Cubans were fighting alongside communist rebels. We had detected their radio calls because they weren't disciplined enough to protect their names or language. They blatantly violated even minimal tactical cover on the radio and of course one Cuban recognizes another. So who had been on that boat? Who had merited such fierce protection? We believed it had to be Che Guevara. It was reasonable to assume that it would have taken someone of his stature and importance of Che to motivate the four boats to remain in the fight and to sacrifice themselves in order to give the fifth boat protection so it could open up and withdraw and escape. And then you got in here in, in Guevara's diary, The African Dream, the Diaries of the revolution, Revolutionary War in the Congo, he writes about the pressure he and the rebels felt from the five commando ground troops and from the navy's interdiction efforts by our daily patrols we had been a, able to nearly close down the rebel supply lines which he created which created a shortage of everything particularly food we also made sure weapons ammunition medicine could not reach their base They were systematically being deprived of everything they depended on as our Navy began to live up to its capabilities. The battle strategy was working exactly as we had planned and prepared for. We intensified patrolling even more and as Che's diary indicates, the intimidation factor we created kept the captains of their vessels from even attempting Translake supply missions. As supplies ran out, the attrition rate kicked up and toward the end of the summer, the Simbas began deserting those desertion numbers would escalate slowly and then become a critical exodus into the fall campaign. And you just posted up with uh, Che Guevara's diary. Yeah, here's, what is he here,
1: here's is the African dream, the diaries of the, the Revolutionary War in the Congo. And in the epilogue, he makes other references in the book, but in the epilogue, uh, when he's discussing the the mercenaries and the opposition services, he says, their weapons do not currently add up. This is, he's writing, to himself and to Castro, um, their weapons do not currently add up to much. The most telling have been their PT boats, which have made it difficult to cross the lake. Blah blah blah. There you go. So, it worked
0: by his own admission. Um, yeah, you, and you've got some. you got some good quotes in here uh, that you pulled from from there. Uh, Guevara's army suffered from a scarcity of competent leadership and lack of organization. According to his writings, his group was continually outmaneuvered by the five commando mercenaries that he refers to as guardsmen. He says in in that book, I was informed that a large number of guardsmen were outflanking us from the hills. Only one unit did honor to our army and resisted for another hour. He continues, from a military point of view, the situation is difficult in that our troops are collections of armed men without the slightest discipline and without fighting spirit. The CIA had built, and fast forward a little bit, the CIA had built a massive air force and the air campaign was critical to our mission success, a training program that had begun as early as 1961 at the request of the Congolese, grew into a superb air force piloted solely by Cuban exiles and and you go into some of that but that's a, another just awesome piece you know the cubans were willing to go out and fight where they ever could wherever they could against communism and and they did they they, they were out there flying around strafing troops and taking out their boats i mean pretty awesome effort um and you say this here Ultimately, Che seemed to recognize the futility of his position. And this is again from his diary. Could I ask the Cubans to die in the trenches to defend this piece of nothing? He questions. He then sent another message by radio to to Fidel Castro. Things are falling apart. Whole units and peasants are going over to the enemy. Crew and boats in good condition urgently needed. Che's calamity was nearly finished in the Congo
1: well it was his 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 own arrogance and ignorance um, at the outset which led to this because he really he did had did no assessment of the environment he was coming into and the people he thought he was going to be working with Mm -hmm. he just thought he was going to come in and make these people ideologically committed and they had and have they didn't know communism from capitalism from you know, whatever utopianism to whatever uh, they wanted to do what they'd always done which rape pillage and blunder and the Thought that he could turn them into some kind of an ideological force was just nonsense. He mm-hmm. he was a Romantic revolutionary in every sense of the word he had uh, he loved to kill uh, there's ample evidence of that and whenever he wanted some practice. He'd just go into the prison in Havana um, and he uh, it, it was all about his zeal for quote the revolution and he, he couldn't build anything which he proved when he was mm-hmm. Minister of Industries in, in In Cuba, he wasn't a builder. He was just a killer mm-hmm. just a killer mm. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. Um, November 21st, you talk about this would have been the day that Guevara and his men evacuated out of Tanzania. Jay Guevara and his ill-fated rebel band had been out of food, money, weapons, supplies, and luck. We ran them out of the Congo. They were sent packing by the combined efforts of the Force Naval Congolese and the mighty Makassi Air Force and the Five Commando Mercenary Army. But even with that portion of the rebels forces on the runs are on the run, our operations against the remaining insurgents continued. The events in Congo began to move quickly after the Communist Cuban forces pulled out the same week on November 25th. General Mobutu staged a bloodless coup d'etat, which ousted President Kazavubu and Prime Minister Kimba. The coup also created internal Congolese constitutional problems. And even though the U.S. saw it as a way of preventing political and military disintegration, Mobutu was only 35 years old, and the Constitution required a minimum presidential age of 40. The Constitution would have to be amended to accommodate him. I've said that all of us in the Congo believe that Mobutu was the best option at the time. He was comparatively non-corrupt, had demonstrated leadership skills, acknowledged his failures of his own troops as a part of an effort to upgrade its quality and performance and showed no signs of seeking revenge or retribution for any of the, anything in the past. The corruption and megalomania that would become the standard in his government was not evident at this time in his personal history. Lieutenant Mike Hoare decides he's not going to extend his contract, so he's done. You got Mobutu um, taking over. Um, you say this here at this point. Lobo one was the was only one nautical mile offshore. Chavez and the crew then withdrew and took their swift boats another four miles out. Waited until dawn. Through the course of the night, it began to rain hard. There was an absolutely no visibility and there were no longer any night lights discernible. At 4 a.m., they began to patrol again, searching for lights as they had earlier. They patrolled that area for another two hours, but as the sun came up, they lost any chance of spotting those lights again. Chavez wrote how bright the lights on the beach were. And then you say they waited, still hoping to see those lights. When no illumination were spotted on the shore, the crew headed south back to their previous target at the end of the peninsula. There they found clusters of lights in two groups. When the crew was ordered to make a high fire, all the lights in both groups suddenly went out. Chavez ordered the crew to fire again and they found the enemy. A rapid exchange of gunfire erupted between the boats and the enemy on the shore. For nearly an hour, Chavez and his crew were embroiled in a ship-to-shore battle using all weapons on board until Chavez log finally records they don't shoot anymore. Lobo One had taken out an enemy stronghold. They had been out of the lake out on the lake for more than 24 hours and had engaged in two serious gunfights attacked on the water and from the shore and these are all these are just highlights that i'm hitting you give really good details and you got the log books from chavez i mean it's it's pretty awesome to read this stuff in fact this is like one one of those cool points you say when i began the project of writing this book i opened the ship's log book for the first time in years i found a note one page of lined paper torn from a loose leaf binder lying inside the front cover The note is addressed to me. I don't remember reading it at the time, but seeing it nearly half century later, written in a little bit of phonetic Spanglish. I found it a gracious parting gift from the crew. Chief, it says, we give you good year, 1966. Employees of Force Navy Kivu, Captain R. Chavez. 1966. Ricardo and his men had indeed handed me and all of us concerned a very good year. <laughs> no, that no, note's a treasure. Yeah, that's that's awesome to be able to find that. So, uh, as this stuff is kind of winding down, and we mentioned that Mike Horr's kind of done with his contract, and and you've got this, you know, you got this story in here. Just you get the book to get this story. But the and you mentioned these guys earlier. You got this guy named John Peters, who's one of Horr's you know top guys um, and then you've got Cassidy uh, and Peters you say let me, let me make sure I get this right Peters had been responsible for securing any of the resources five commando had taken during their raids Peters was an ex NCO who is said to have a fanatical prejudice against the British officer class he was also a ruthless killer, may have been a deserter from the British Army. And then on the, so you got that guy, you got this guy, John Peters, and then you've also got another guy named Von Oppen, or sorry, Van Oppen. And Van Oppen, you say here, it was a textbook, perfect as a British officer, tall and handsome, upper middle uh, upper crust British accent, had attended the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. He'd gotten court-martialed because of something that happened, like something got stolen, and he ends up uh, not graduating, but he ends up fighting in Korea. He ends up fighting in Egypt. Then he serves in the federal army in, in Rhodesia. And basically you go through this whole story. It's just fascinating to read about. Um, these guys are basically in competition for who's going to take over as leaders of the five commando. Correct. And one of them ends up dead. Um. Van Oppen ends up dead with a bunch of bullets in his stomach and
1: self inflicted. Allegedly a click, a click. I mean a clip, a whole clip, self inflicted tough guy.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's wild, you know, cause a lot of this stuff, you know, growing up, I was always fascinated with the military. You know, I was fascinated with anyone, you know, mercenaries, soldier of fortune, like all this stuff was part of my childhood. You know, the movies, and so, when you you know, like, you kind of know these names, like I did. I mean, I've always known about uh, about Mike Hoare. You know, he's this famous guy, and Five Commando. You know about these things, and then you know about the Rhodesians, and you know the recruiting that happened with the Rhodesians to bring British military down there, and uh, just like the Rhodesian Commandos, like all those things. That that all you you shed so much light on those things, and it's it's wild for me to think about because every time I think about my core i'm like no you were actually you you worked with this guy yeah. how long were you there for total uh, a little less than a year so this is a guy you worked with like directly mm-hmm. and 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 all these mer- crazy mercenary killers when crazy mercenary killers was a thing cuz listen there's a modern day version of a mercenary who, you know that goes out and does security and they're working for the government and they're getting yeah. hired by one of these big contractors and look there's been some flare ups there's been some things that have happened that are certainly have been investigated and some people have been punished I, I i don't have a lot of details about that but but basically it's a much more common thing that oh this guy retired from the marine corps went to work for this company he's going overseas as a contractor yeah that's not the same thing that's just not the same thing as what these guys were these guys are legit mercenaries, right. and this is your day-to-day interactions, you built the navy with these guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's wild to read. Um, uh, going back to the book here, and you mentioned this earlier, but it was a cruel element of fate that came into our world on the afternoon of November 28th It would take a major cr- toll on our crew. About six o'clock in the evening, a young Congolese corporal was driving a poorly maintained truck down um, this military transport road and with no warning, the truck sputtered and stopped stalling directly in front of the Bar Calame, just near the Bada Boot Store and a few hundred meters north of the Hotel Loc. that's where you guys lived.
1: The Bada Boot Store was the only store in Albertville that had glass in the windows. <laughs> Ane- uh, anecdote, yeah, so this truck
0: breaks <laughs> down um and and it just doesn't move, and so it's a Sunday evening, a new moon had just occurred, so at one thirty five a m on Monday, it was pitch black African night on a deserted street with a five ton hazard laying in wait. There was no caution lights on the truck, no reflectors, nothing that would mark the presence of an enormous vehicle. Abandoned on a dark dry road in the middle of the night a pair of five commando mercenary soldiers from South Africa Hans von Leers and Cornelius Johans von week Had been out together that night Gooch was with them The three of them had driven that road many times and knew the terrain very well Von Leers was behind the wheel and Gooch was in the shotgun seat van Wyke was riding in the back In the blackness of the African night, with the driver feeling sure of himself, the Jeep came racing down that road at a high rate of speed. The official accident report states that the Jeep slammed full force into the back of the transport truck, thrusting the truck forward and embedding its front bumper solidly into a coconut palm. Van Lira's lay half inside and half outside the GPU, still alive when the first witness ran to the scene The other South African van week was also still alive and was quickly taken to the hospital for treatment Gooch was killed instantly. I Was not informed about the incident about the accident until the next morning when I got the news I was immediately I went immediately to where his body had been placed. Cassidy came with me. From the source that is now lost to memory, we found wood and materials and hammered together a coffin. With the assistance of Chavez, Pichardo, and Papo, we wrapped it in strong, heavy canvas and transported it down to the port where we somehow managed to get a refrigeration unit in one of the warehouses working. We made sure that Gucci's body was held appropriately until a plane could get it to Albertville to make the transport to Leopoldville there could be properly prepared for the onward trip back to the USA Gooch was certainly not the first casualty I dealt with but he was the one that affected me the most having to handle his body with respect in those extremely crude circumstances was most disheartening it was my challenge and my responsibility and we did our best in that terrible situation to get our friend and comrades body back safely to his family his contribution to our mission had been essential I've carried guilt around for 50 years for obeying my instructions from the agency not to speak with his wife at the time in Retrospect in retrospect it was an exaggerated security concern by the agency I'm hoping that this book will adequately say what I would have said all those years ago The Goff family children remember the day well When they heard the news, they arrived home from school and some family friends were there. A priest, Father Alphonse Olive, who was also a family friend, was there. He took the children to the bedroom and told them what happened. It was a very difficult time for the family. They were not able to get a lot of information from the agency about the circumstances of Gooch's death. Youngest son, Nat, was the one who eventually did the research years later, trying to fit all the pieces together. Marcel Rene Goff Gooch to us was buried at an Arlington National Cemetery on December 6 1965 He was just 41 years old His son Mickey who is known as little Gooch Remembers that many of his father's UDT and EOD mates were at Arlington that day for the funeral One of his most vivid memories is of the casket. He describes it as being made of dark tropical wood It was a small piece of the Congo that went with Gooch and then on to his final rest. His name is also inscribed on the memorial wall at the Navy SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida, where it belongs. And also, and this is, you, you mentioned this later in the book, in 2016, they added a gold star to the CIA memorial wall at their headquarters in Langley. Virginia in honor of Gucci's sacrifice I love a guy <clears throat> When did you you said you met you finally met the family around the time this book came out mm-hmm. What they do afterwards
1: uh, She worked at the CIA and mm-hmm. you know, whatever Mm-hmm. I, don't know. They, uh, they, uh, I think we, if I remember correctly, we met at, in 2014, we had the 50th commemoration of the hostage rescue at Stanleyville, which was the, the prelude of this, mm-hmm. of this book. And that was, the large, I think, the largest rescue of American hostages in history, at least up to that time. And Five Commando gets the credit for the rescue, but it was really Cubans led by an American guy named Rip Robertson, CIA paramilitary guy who got there first. Um, There's a, on the cover of Paris Match magazine and sometime in 65 or 66, 65 sorry, 64. Damn it, come on Jim. There's a picture of this swarthy guy who she didn't know was Cuban, holding this little blonde-haired, blue-eyed four-year-old girl uh, with a machine gun in his other hand. Uh, And she and a whole bunch of the other people who were rescued, including four of the five sons of the American missionary who was murdered at KM-8 kilometer eight outside of Stanleyville. Two of the sons were were wounded but not severely and that, during that rescue period. <clears throat> they, uh, four of those five sons and all these other people including this little girl not a little girl any longer obviously 50 years later all came to Miami to the commemoration because none of them had ever met the people who rescued them. Mm-hmm. It was very moving. You can imagine. For sure. Yeah, uh, This, you know, she, the, the, they'd never met the people who would save their lives. And these four American guys, or I guess they're Americans, they have been born and raised in the Congo. Their dad was died. They're still in the Congo f- doing the Lord's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the amazing guys. Anyway, they these people all came. The only coverage, the only coverage was the Miami, uh, the Miami, uh, TV station. Uh, gee, what's the guy's name? He's a, been a real friend of the community um, for this very moving event. I mean, you know, these all these people whose lives were were, were saved, both Americans and uh, other nationalities, not 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 counting all the, the Congolese. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this, because uh, the Cubans have never given been given any f- recognition for what they did. This is it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, 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 it's just outrageous in my mind. And none of those Cuban politicians have gotten off their butts and done anything about it in Florida either, which I cannot understand. Um, but anyway... Mm-hmm. Um, that was a very moving event. That fiftieth commemoration. Wow, uh, all those people there to say thanks, Anthony, for coming from all around the world, and we couldn't even get anybody from Washington D.C.
0: <laughs> Figures. Um, fast forward a little bit here. You, you know, you you got more fighting with the rebels. You're beating the rebels. The the Cuban sailors start start to kind of turning over with the locals and with the five commando. And just to close out this part part of the book, you say here, "With my Cuban crew gone and missions winding down, it was finally time for me to pack up and leave the Congo." I did so exactly as I had arrived, quietly. I boarded the C forty six in Albertville with my three pairs of khaki pants, three safari shirts, and a pair of desert boots. <laughs> and, and and that was that. That was that. <laughs> um, h- how was? So what did you do when you got back? How was your transition back to the world? Well,
1: uh, well, like, you know, when you're when you're when you're you know very well when you're working with that amount of adrenaline const- constantly pumping into your system, it it you, it takes a while to come down. Uh, you know, you you miss it. It's it's it's. I've never done a drug in my life, but I, I can't imagine it can be any more um, Addictive than mm-hmm. than that degree of, uh, of, of Adrenaline constantly Being injected into your system, uh, so I uh, I met a lady in uh, in Leopoldville she worked at the embassy there and she was, and so I, I kind of chased her around for a little while, and uh, um, tried to figure out what I really what I, what I was going to do next. They, by this time, the agency had decided they wanted me to go into the career training program, mm-hmm. um, and I, I really liked what I'd been done, and I liked the people that I'd worked with. I mean, how you know? How can you beat? First, you deal with seals, and then you deal with the best guys they got in the agency. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a run, mm-hmm. um,
0: with oh, an incredible amount of autonomy as a yeah, 26-year-old. Yeah, exactly. You're freaking running exactly. a war in the Congo. Exactly.
1: Well, then I would. I, oh, I remember now what I was going to do. I wanted to go to Laos. Then I'd have been the only guy in the only guy in the sort of special ops community who had done Vietnam, Congo, and Laos. Be. I mean today what was <laughs> anyway at the time I thought it'd be fun to do. Well, I got conned by the best who, who basically said, okay, you can be a knuckle dragger all your life or you can really get into the into the tough stuff and he wanted me to be a, strictly a foreign intelligence to be an intelligence uh, uh, be a case officer mm-hmm. So uh, and, I, and so I went into the uh, I went into the career training program. Got all the, all the training, which was terrific, and then uh, uh, at the end of that, uh, you, you, you basically you I, I didn't want to go in the embassy. I didn't want anything to do with the embassy. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's the career path, in the in the, in the agency. You've got to really, got to be in the you got to be in the embassy because that's where the, most case officers are. And I said, no, that's not for me. And they said, well, might as well be a non-official cover. And I said, you'll be all alone. And I said, sounds great. (laughs) And so so they fixed me up with a cover that was illegal in the country that I went to. So I had to set my own cover, which meant starting a business. And that worked out well. It provided a good cover, and the the business was— afforded me a way of um, enhancing my ability to collect the kind of intelligence they were interested in at the time. This was in Southeast Asia, so Vietnam was hot. What year is this, 1965? This is 68, 67, 68, 69. And um, so the country that I went to was hostile at the time. And so that was pretty exciting, uh, doing some interesting stuff. And then the country went our way. They just opted for the West. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was a, it was a battleground country from the communists, or from the West. It went our way. So then I just got bored. I mean, I just got bored, it was. It was,
0: was there any other countries they put on the plate for you?
1: Well then, there would have been. Uh, but, but you were bored. But, but, but I was bored. I had a, we had a personal problem I had to deal with. would required some professional help and um, couldn't get it anywhere else. And I had really liked starting that business. Uh, and so <laughs> I fired off an application to Harvard Business School. Figuring, you know, <laughs> at the time, they, it's not like that today, I don't think, but at the time, uh, they, a, they were interested in screwballs, so you know, had sort of under different kind of backgrounds. And I thought, well, you know, I'm happy doing what I I, I like. I got no complaints. I'm happy doing what if I can get to Harvard Business School, I'll go. Otherwise, I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. This this is not bad. And um, uh, I got in. And uh, so I fired off a resignation, which shocked everybody. Because, again, I didn't have any complaints. I've been well treated. They said, quote, the the words were shocked and dismayed. (laughs) And I said, hey, what can I say? I got no complaints. This has been great. I'm just going to do something else.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was it. That was it. I went to business school, went back, went back to Asia for the next 35 years.
0: And what were you doing? What kind of businesses were you
1: Oh, uh, well, we were <clears> – <throat> first thing I did was uh, I was in charge of building the, the first Sheraton in Asia, which huh. was the Hong Kong Sheraton. And I met this guy in Atlanta who was – the most remarkable business guy I've ever worked with, and it was terrible to start with him because I thought this is what business was going to be like, and I never met another one like it. <laughs> but in a way, he was kind of like Dick Johnson. You know, you see, once he made a once he made a decision on you, that was it. He just backed you to the hilt. So, with two weeks of real estate experience, one week in his office and one week at the Travel Crow Company in Dallas, which was the number one real estate company in the whole country at the time. I went out, uh, he took me out to Hong Kong, said, this is Jun Ho, he speaks for me, and left. And it was the deepest hole in Hong Kong at the time. It was, uh, uh, the financing was not in place. It was on the tail end of the Cultural Revolution. So people, in Hong Kongers, were still looking for the exit, because they didn't know what was going to happen, whatever it is, 50 years later was going to, might happen then. And, uh... So he basically said, figure it out. So I'd had some experience at that. So it was OK. I mean, I didn't really didn't know much. It didn't, there was talent around it, new real estate. It was sort of how to get it all all put together. And my deal on that was a handshake. Uh, I worked for mighty low wages for a project. That was the biggest, most glamorous project in Hong Kong. And I was basically working for Peanuts. Uh, he, but the deal was that uh, he'd give me a stake on my own because he, he correctly said when we first got acquainted, he said, Look, I know what you're like. You're going to want to go on your own. And that's fine. Just promise me we'll do a deal together. So that was, and it was a handshake. Hmm. Uh, this guy was, I told you, I never met anyone like him in the business world. Anyway, his personal life was a shambles, but his professional life was absolutely <laughs> perfect. The guy was just behaved perfectly in business, and uh, <clears throat> which defies the usual. You know the usual rule that people have about that. Anyway, um, so the Sheraton was, and we in <clears throat> Hong Kong, the culture Revolution was was uh, ending, and Hong Kong was starting to come back because it was such a such an incredibly resilient and energetic place with all those Chinese entrepreneurs, and um, so the project was going good. So I called him and I said, "Well, I'm ready to." I'm ready to uh, to do my own deal. There was kind of a silence, and he said, "Okay, let me know. What do you want to do?" So I go back to Indonesia, dumbass that I am, because <clears throat> here I've done the most glamorous project in Hong Kong. So what do I do? I leave to go back <laughs> to go back to Indonesia. Well, I got lucky on Indonesia because the offshore industry was just starting. There was no office space. And I created the first office park in Indonesia, which was, which is a, as close as I can make it to perimeter office park in Atlanta, Georgia. In fact, I went into them, said I'd like to do this in Indonesia, can I have a set of your plans? they said, Well, I guess we'll never do it. He's like in Indonesia, yeah, here. So he gave me a set of the plans and modified them and, no kidding and and did this office park in Jakarta, which was a roaring success. Which is exactly when I should have quit except at this point I thought I was a hell of a businessman I thought I was a hell of a businessman <laughs> anyway um, so I, I stayed in Indonesia for a while did some more stuff in Indonesia and, uh, and by this time we had uh, had one we had one daughter and another one on the way and my wife had trouble carrying, uh, so we had to be near the right kind of medical facilities there were none in Indonesia so we moved to Singapore stayed in Singapore for the next don't you know 10 or 12 years or whatever, and uh, had huge successes and huge failures. I went up and down like a (laughs) yo-yo. And uh, so I've I've basically been connected with Asia ever since. And we started the first venture capital firm, which was based in Hong Kong, with a grand capital fund of $2 million, (laughs) 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 mostly passing the hat to people— Around and about, and that that brought Mc, the first McDonald's to Asia, which of course was a roaring success. It mm-hmm. made us all look better than we were. Um, and um, it did a number of other things: first, IKEA's in Asia, the first McDonald's in Asia, the first shirt in Asia. It was a great time to be there. Great time to be there. Uh, and the thing I loved about Southeast Asia is it was kind of like going through SEAL training. Nobody knew who your daddy was. Nobody mm-hmm. cared. It was all, all on you. You you made your own reputation. That was that was good with me. And then you know then the American lawyers and the American banks started coming in and screwing it up. But <laughs> it, it was the best time in the history of the world to be there. <laughs> and then since then I've just and since then I've just done stuff. Uh, you know business things, entrepreneurial type things.
0: But you spent the last few years in Africa, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And what were you doing there this time? Well, when I, I when I was allegedly
1: in, when I <laughs> now, when I was I was in, when I was in Burma on a, a two month consulting gig that turned out to be a year. A friend of mine had taken over CEO CEO of the first of the biggest bank in Burma and mentor to the daughters of the owner. A, a, a really remarkable guy, he is. Um, and he said, come on, take a look around, because they had 450 branches and scattered throughout Burma, or Myanmar as it's known today. And about half of them are out there in the boonies where there are 31 to 33 dissident armies, depending on whose drugs were moving that day. And so, and everything was cash. 95% of that economy is cash, it was cash. So they were, had some security concerns, and my, my pal came, you know, my friend, who I'd done some stuff with in China years before, uh, said um, come on out and have a look around will you for a couple months i said sure well that turned out to be a year and during that year the the military did their coup so it was becoming a little less inviting for, mm-hmm. for people with our kind of a background and about this time about this time i get a call from africa from congo it says are you interested in doing a um a uh surveillance program in the gulf of guinea because the fo- the locus of of uh, kidnapping and and piracy and so forth it was shifting from Horn of Africa to the Gulf of Guinea. And I said, no, I'm not interested in a surveillance program. I said, "Uh, you can get a radar. You guys think surveillance is radars. You can get a radar manufacturer. We'll be glad to flog you some radars, half-ass train your people and disappear. I'm not interested in that. So if you're interested in a comprehensive solution, I, uh, I'd be interested. And they said, "Well, what's that?" And I said, "Well, I'll write it up for you and send you a PowerPoint." And it had to do with detection, you know, surveillance, detection, instant, reliable communications, rapid reaction force, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> None of which any of them had. And they said, "Oh, we like this." So <clears throat> I said, "Okay, uh, I'll come, but let's get one thing straight. I'm too old to run away from the IRS." And y'all's reputation is your doing, not mine. So anything I do, I'm to be able to sign with a U.S. company, LLC, and a, and a U.S. bank account. Oh, yeah, don't worry. No problem. No problem. <laughs> Look, these places are as corrupt as Washington. Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're terrible. And, uh, and so uh, I've been the last three years working on those in several countries. And it looks like it's going to happen. I hope it's going to happen because it's a worthy it's a worthy way to go out. Uh, Eastern Congo is where seventy five percent of the rare earth minerals come from, mm-hmm. and it's actually slavery. I mean, it is real life slavery. I'm not exaggerating. It's slavery. It's terrible, and uh, uh, they're more. It's it's a worse. It's distinguishing is hardly worth doing, but it's arguably worse than the Ukraine. And, uh, <laughs> you know, periodically the western, western western, western countries send out a, a training team and blah, blah, and they go around. But, you know, they're out in a terrain that's got no roads, or if they do, they're impassable for most of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how do, they, how, do they, how do people move around? Well, they move around in the rivers. The bad guys move around in the rivers. The good guys don't. They don't have any marine capability. And, and, and all the locals move around the river so I, you know I, I finally met this minister and I said minister <coughs> you don't have a way, I said number one you the only way you know what's going on out there is if you get in a plane with your staff and you fly out there and then you got to find them on impassable roads um, and then when you find them, You've got no maneuverability and you don't have any way of finding out What you did what happened after you got there you so you got to have community instant communications Which are available if you know how to access them. I say so you got to have a riverine capability because that's how the bad guys move uh, So you got to have a rapid reaction force and you have got to have the right kind of equipment and have the right kind of training and Here's the package and they all say they want to do it, and a a, a critical part of it has been figuring out how to get them financed. And I think we got that, I think we got that figured out, solved. So we're getting mighty close. But I hate to say we're doing it because you know you're not doing it till you're doing it. But we're we're mighty close, and that's what I've been working on. It's about four countries.
0: <laughs> so, Still got a lot of stuff going on. Well, the only way to go. <laughs> um you know it's interesting too and just going back to the book here for a second you know the way this all turned out uh government corruption of course allowed many idea many of the riches of the congo to be exported it was a country with deep reserves of copper cobalt uranium and diamonds 1971 Mobutu uh renamed the con- the country zaire uh, Diamonds ended up surpassing everything as the Congo's main export, including cobalt and copper. Diamonds made made up 30% of the country's total exports in 1989, but through corruption and financial mismanagement, the entire mining industry was in jeopardy and its share of the GDP went from 11.3% in 1988 to 4.7% in 1994. Mobutu's ill-conceived fiscal programs drove the country from bad to worse as the years wore on, even as his personal fortune soared. Over his 32 year reign, he was estimated to be worth as much as $5 billion while almost all facets of life in Congo deteriorated. He maintained a presidential services fund that took up between 17 and 20% of the government's budget. He owned personal stock in every enterprise relating to Zaire in Congo. And it was said that no business transaction with a foreign owned company was allowed to take place unless a kickback was paid to Mobutu. Personally, he was the largest shareholder in the bank of Kinsasha and had personal ownership, either partial or outright in agricultural businesses, mining and manufacturing in all provinces of the country. But as Mobutu and his family members and handpicked cronies grew wealthier, the country fell to near ruin. The highway road and rail systems were in utter disrepair, the healthcare system wasn't funded, human rights violations were rampant. Just a few years before Mobutu would finally leave the scene, according to the same Harvard study, the country faced a risk of virtual disintegration due to hyperinflation, the GDP plummeted, pushing the economy into substance agriculture. By the end of 1995, income per capita was only one third its pre-independence levels. Mobutu got forced out of power in nineteen ninety seven. He died in exile a year after that. Um Laurent Kabila took over. I was in the, I was in Sierra Leone in nineteen ninety eight as the war was going off and things were getting crazy again in the Congo. The Echo Mog was down there working. Um it sounds like you're back there now, at least trying to make make a positive impact. Yeah, four different countries. Outstanding. Yeah. Um, what else? Do we get every? Is that it? Are we up to speed? Are we up to present day? I think we're pretty close. Mm-hmm. Echo, you got any questions?
3: Th- this is gonna seem out of nowhere, but how Singapore right now as a place to live.
1: I was in Singapore when we were in de- in- declared independence, mm. um, right after that. Because I went down from Vietnam before you were allowed to go to Singapore from Vietnam, uh, and uh, it was so. I've seen the whole, the whole transition, the whole growth. Remarkable, remarkable what can be done when the corruption is at an absolute minimum, mm-hmm. and you got everybody focused with a strong leader. Uh, Singapore is a garden spot just a garden spot it's now expensive mm-hmm. and they're now they're there now they have a bit of a social problem and it's just gotten so expensive mm. they got to do you got to do something to keep the spark uh spark going which mm. was uh but yes they uh Lee Kuan you uh was uh, it was a multiracial with all the with all of the I mean just the next door in Malaysia there was always the Chinese Malay problem. And it wouldn't none of that in Singapore. Mm-hmm. The Indian community in Singapore was was small, uh, comparatively small, but extremely uh, important. Uh, and Lee Kuan Yew was able to take this team of Chinese Indians and and a couple of Malays and lead that growth, no corruption tolerated, uh, and unleash the entrepreneurial spirit uh, within the rules. And uh, it's just been an extraordinary to watch it, just extraordinary. I, mean, I knew those guys. I mean, I knew his, you know, so many of his old team. That's what. So I remember, you know, I I can remember when they did the classic thing. In came the garment, uh, garment guys, because that's where they had to get people employed. What he did, what he did, was he gave everybody a stake in success of Singapore by by making sure everybody was an owner of their own residence. <laughs> Now in doing that he had to get rid of the traditional villages which caused you know a lot of people in the west yeah. just remember when all this was going on and you guys were having to read the New York Times and the Washington Post I was I was out there and I was reading the Bangkok Post and the straight <laughs> in the Singapore Straits Times and the Jakarta Post and the Malaysian Times Whole different stuff
2: mm. <laughs>
1: okay um so he, uh, I can remember. I can remember when, at the start of it all, once a year, Lee Kuan, Yew would pick out an expatriate business leader, and hang him. Not not literally hang him, but you know, he just would assume that he was up to something, and making him example. Okay, mm. was that fair and good? <laughs> uh, he generally picked the right guys. Okay. <laughs> I remember how significant it was the first time he picked a Chinese business leader, to make an example of. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, that was a, because it reflected actually the, what was happening in the, in the society. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Chinese were slowly taking over everything that had previously been colonial, or whatever. Uh, yeah, that, that started out with a factory, you know, just the factory, the garment workers. I remember how, you know, how embarrassed they were. Uh, Singapore when uh, when they had an outbreak of uh, Koro and this Koro was supposed was a uh, was a group hysteria in which the, the the men were afraid that their that their scrotums were ascending into their lower abdomen and they would get and they got hysterical and this happened in factories and they had a name for it I think it was Koro if I remember correctly And dealing with all that kind of stuff, and I mean, they went through the whole whole thing, except they went through it with a guy who was who was adamant against corruption, and uh, was focused on on success and what was good for Singapore. Uh, And the U.S. U.S. didn't make it easy for him early on in the early days because they considered him a socialist. And when I take a look around at the guys, know I go back to that headquarters thing. (laughs) We never listened to the guys who worked with O Chi Minh during the Second World War, never paid any attention to O Chi Minh was a communist, O okay? Chi Minh wanted to be successful. In Hong Kong, in Lumumba, in Lumumba, communist, 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 Lamumba was looking for friends. We weren't going to be his friend because the Belgians didn't like him and therefore and we couldn't like him. So he goes to the to go to, the, to go to Russia. When I did the, was doing the research for this, I was all starting off with a of what I'd always thought about Lumumba. I would come to the conclusion, Lumumba wasn't not a hardcore communist. He was just looking for friends and where he could get the money to help him do what he was trying to do. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, a yeah, socialist. Lee Kuan Yew wasn't a socialist. He understood what he is. He understood his people. <laughs> you know, he understood what it would take to grow. And he would listen. He got this Dutch... Economic guy, economist, and the two of them together put the master plan for what has become Singapore. And then not only that, he voluntarily stepped down. Mm -hmm. I mean, tell me how many dictators have done that (laughs) anywhere, any continent? So uh, anyway, that starts a kind of a wordy answer to your question. It's a great place. I lived there for fifteen or twenty years. Righto. Yeah. Uh,
2: uh,
0: Jim, any other any other closing thoughts? Term limits. <laughs> I support them.
1: <laughs> Meritocracy. <laughs> I support it.
0: Uh, awesome. Uh, well, you know, before closing out, I just wanted to go to the book one last time. I want to. You, you gave a speech at a reunion to honor those that had fought in the Congo: the Americans, the Cubans, the Belgians. Yeah. I think this was 2014. Yeah, that that was the the 50th commemoration. And um, here's what you said about these men, and I'm just going to read an extra probably. You said, these men, these fine men will receive no recognition, no medals, no Rose Garden thanks. They've always known that is the way it would be and they have never asked for more. What they will have that no one can ever deny them is the respect, admiration, and affection of those who were there and who, and who truly know how bravely and honorably these men performed. And of course, the gratitude from those who were saved. What these men had was each other, their mutual trust, respect, their pride in their performance, and their dedication to the eradication of communism. There were no expressions of entitlement, and there are still none. They took the conditions, circumstances, and threats that were presented and did what they were tasked with accomplishing. They were disciplined and proud participants in a historical event saving thousands of lives, including those we are privileged to have with us here today in their desire to salute their rescuers. It is no exaggeration to say that these folks would not have survived that terror without the intervention and performance of these men. 50 years later, there are lessons in these events relevant to today's war on terror. It takes dedicated men of intelligence, judgment, and courage willing to go into harm's way to do the job, to protect the lives of the innocent, and to destroy those of perverted political and religious beliefs who seek to harm us. Please join me and salute these deserving men. Well, sir, we salute these heroes for sure and I'm glad we can <laughs> c- tell their story and salute you for your service and, and thank you, sir, for what you did for the teams and what you did for our country and for the cause of freedom in the world.
1: Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for what you do and what you're going to continue to do. And I really appreciate this because. Not enough people know about these guys.
0: Well, we're telling them now. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thanks, sir. Appreciate <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. And with that, Jim Hoss has left the building. Definitely a pretty awesome conversation. Twenty. You go back to that twenty-six years old, mm. being in the Congo by yourself, <laughs> working with random mercenaries yeah. and foreign nationals and and putting together to fight a war against insurgents yeah. That's pretty awesome, and it's pretty awesome. He kept referring back to The training right yeah, and I think that's such a huge part and, and he, he mentioned Ben Milligan I'll mention Ben Milligan as well in that book in in Ben Milligan's book uh, by by water beneath the walls you know he he ties that route back into the US Navy and the Navy in general and how when you're out on a ship by yourself in the middle of nowhere, you gotta make things happen. Yeah, It's decentralized command. So this is an incredible example of decentralized command for a 26-year-old Lieutenant Junior Gray in the US Navy to roll out and run a of a, a, a counterinsurgency in a different country. So very cool. Lots of things going on, uh, definitely appreciate it. I also obviously love hearing some of those old stories about what training was like. G- when he sent me some a little bit of a bio, he said "You know, class 29E, and then he had in parentheses, winter. He wanted yes. to let me know that it was a winter yeah, yeah. hell week, and he talked about the snow and everything, but yeah, that stuff's pretty cool.
3: Is that, that's a big difference though, right? The winter versus, because you guys talk about that here. Or at the end of the day, is it just hard, hard? It's hard,
0: hard. Let's face it; it's a little bit colder. Yeah, it's a little bit colder. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah, my I think my hell week was like a spring hell week. Yeah, it was like a spring hell week.
3: That's still cold, right, Coronado?
0: Oh yeah, I mean it definitely was cold. I mean you're going to be cold, but it wasn't 37 degrees, which in a winter hell week out here can be 37 degrees, 41 degrees. Yeah. They and 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 listen. There's some different suffering that happens in the summertime. Yeah. Cause you're hotter. Mm. And being hot sucks. Yeah. And and I guess in the winter, in the summertime, you're more swollen and more chafed.
3: Oh, for real. Damn.
0: So, well, you know, pick your poison. Yeah. But I think you got to if you just run the numbers. Yeah. More people quit now. Week during the winter time. Yeah. I think if you just run the numbers, you I can't sit here and defend it. I can't be like, well, you know, it's just as hard. No, right, right. if you run the numbers, you're gonna find winter hell week less survivors. Damn. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, and the, East Coast winter hell week, snow on the ground. Yeah, uh, that's. Yeah. You know, some people are quitting. He you know, when you see that snow, yeah, some people yeah, are quitting straight yeah, up. Yeah,
3: he mentioned that, but where it's like, Yeah, you fall down in the snow. You're like, damn, that's a, so, just psychologically right out the gate.
0: The, the interesting thing is they're gonna get you,
3: yeah.
0: they're gonna get you. Yeah. And they're gonna make you, they're gonna push you to your physical limit. you like, how many pushups can you do right now if I dropped you down and said, I want you to do as many pushups as you can?
1: If you
3: give me two, a minute and a half to like N- to stretch no, no, out. Keep,
0: okay, yep, you got that minute and a half uh, to stretch out. How many are you gonna get?
3: Solid, probably 120 maybe.
0: Okay, so you do 120 pushups. Mm-hmm. And then what are you gonna do when I tell you to keep going? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Lay down. You I see what I'm saying? Like, know. by the way, yeah.
0: how long would it take you to do 120 push-ups? Uh, I don't
3: know. One, two, hundred forty seconds. Hundred twenty seconds. Okay, so oh. two minutes. Yeah.
0: So let's say I drop you down. You do two minutes worth of push-ups. Yeah. Two minutes. We have 14 more hours to kill in this day. <laughs> first, first phase of buds, right? <laughs> like you could exhaust yeah. yourself in every exercise, yeah. and guess what? You're going to keep going. Yeah,
3: you got to keep going. Yeah, that's that's so. Brutal.
0: So you're going to reach your physical limitation. You're gonna reach your mental limitation when you, they, you freak out about stuff and stress and all this stuff. Yeah. So they're gonna get you. It's gonna be 37 degrees. It might be 45 degrees. It might be 52 degrees. Yeah. But they're gonna get you. They're gonna get a bunch of people to quit. So wow. the cool thing is you learn that adaptability and you learn how to make things happen, which is what uh, Jim Haas put to, put to use yeah. in yeah. Vietnam and then over in the Congo. That's crazy. The Rock, the Democrat, Democratic Republic. Congo um, So speaking of things going on We all have a lot of things going on you should hopefully we're trying to have a lot of things going on You need to fuel that get yourself some Jocko fuel. Yep. I I just drank two Jocko goes yep. What's cool is I feel so good and I'm gonna feel good. Yeah, I'm gonna feel good. Mm-hmm. There's no not gonna be a crash yeah. Not in two hours. I'm not gonna be Coiled up watching a Netflix series <laughs> In fact, I'm gonna be training yeah. in a little
3: while, okay, you okay. know,
0: right. so that's what we're doing. Yep. That's what we're getting after uh, JockoFuel.com. go check that out. We got we got ready to by the way once when when Jim left the building Jocko grabbed a mulk. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I Grabbed mm-hmm. an RTD. Yeah. ready to drink milk protein um, Get yourself some of that. We're in a bunch of stores around the world well around the country right now, we're in Vitamin shop. Number one brand in Vitamin Shop. you aware of that?
3: Uh, yes, I am. I saw that process
0: go down. Good to be. Um, military commissars we're in there. We're in Hannaford, we're in Dash stores we're in Wakefront and Shop for ShopRite. We're in HEB down in Texas, where it's crushing. We I was just in Texas. They have the big, uh, they call it an end cap in the industry. And what that means is, you know how have an aisle in the grocery store, oh, and yeah, at the yeah. end of the aisle, there's could be some product there. Yeah. They have a whole end cap. That whole end is just Jocko Fuel stuff. Yeah. Powder, pow pow, yeah. milk pow pow.
3: Yeah, it's good, because all these things like, um, you know, when you can kind of compare it to others, mm-hmm. and all this stuff, where, because I have been guilty of this in the past, distant past, where, man, I need like an energy drink, mm-hmm. or even like one of these little ready-to-drink proteins, or whatever. And bro, I just ignore the amount of sugar in there. I'm just going to ignore oh, that because, man, I'm yeah. on the go. You know, I'm leaving yeah, or whatever. all kinds of
0: excuses that are just RTEs, ready, ready. to excuse. <laughs>
3: Some RTEs all day. And the thing is, th- that is factually true where I'm like, hey, man, maybe I'm going into catabolic breakdown mm. or something like this. So I do need that protein or whatever. Mm. Sure. I could, you know, so I'll get the. You know, these other, I don't want to name anything, you know, throw nobody under the bus, but you do get these ready to drink protein,
0: yeah. milk, we'll somewhere. say
3: a gas station or a 7-Eleven, something like this. And yeah, like you see, if you dare to look at the sugar yeah. or these other things, Hey, listen,
0: honestly, if you remotely care about your health yeah, and you look at the sugar, you're putting it back. Yeah. put it back. Look, if I'm guilty of that, yep. I won't, I'm not even looking, you know what I mean? And yeah. I know it's just a lie. Yeah. It's once you look and you go, Oh. 36 grams of sugar. uh, Serving size, one. Servings per container, two. So you're about to ingest 72 grams of sugar. That doesn't make up for being catabolic. That protein's not worth it. It's not worth what you're doing to your insulin levels.
3: And it's true, Brad. So in a situation like that, this is how it used to be for me. Where, hey man, I'll just pay that price just today.
0: Look, I'm not doing
3: it every day. Just today I'll pay that price. Mm-hmm. And you so you pay you pay that price. Mm-hmm. Like of course you pay the price mm-hmm. for the for the product, you know, mm-hmm. at the register. Yeah. But come on, that price There's is going with you down pay. the street. Right, you see right, what, right. what I'm saying? Bruh, not anymore, man. Bruh, Bro, I'll grab two of those. Whatever. I Sixty pounded, grams of protein. I pounded
0: good. yesterday, I pounded two, this yeah. back to back. Yeah. Just got it done. Yeah. Banana banana.
3: Yep. No additional. <laughs> no additional cost of <laughs> your your conscience. No. Nope. At all.
0: It's clean clean fuel. Clean fuel. Jocko fuel. By the way, listen. Time war. This is something, here's my here's my anecdotal story. Yeah. I went to the muster. At the muster, you have those downstage monitors. They are a certain size. When I look, so you were standing on stage and you look down to see what the notes are.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And listen, I've been blessed, knock on wood, that my vision's always been good. And like a lot of people my age, my friends, they have glasses. Like, they wear eyeglasses to read or they wear eyeglasses to look far or whatever. I've been very, very lucky.
2: Yeah.
0: But, you know, sometimes you like, especially if my eyes get a little tired, like I read a bunch, sometimes I start noticing something, I'm like, what is this? Yeah. And so I was at the muster, and I'm like, hey, did we get bigger downstage monitors? And Wes was like, no, it's the same size. And I said, oh, are you using a bigger font? And he's like, no, that's the standard. And I was like, oh, I can see more clearly. Why is that? There's only one variable that's changed. Time war. And we have ocular nutrition in there. Mm. So yeah, that's like one small element, but I'll tell you what it's not even a small element. Mm. I will never I will take I will take time war for the rest of my life right now. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. Just yeah. off that right there. Yeah. That's just incredible. And to know that you're fueling your body and keeping it in in on the path is freaking epic, so get Time War, try it out, let me know what you think, I think it's freaking legit. So, uh, there you go, jocofuel.com, check it out.
3: Yeah, that mix of Time War, because it has a lot of stuff in there, like even vitamins, minerals, all the the anti-aging stuff Mm -hmm. or whatever, it's funny, so a mix like that, right? Where it's not like, uh, you know, when you drink a coffee, you know, it's like, I know what the coffee's gonna do, so is make me feel more alert, awake, whatever, all mm-hmm. that stuff or whatever, but a mix like that, it's funny how all the little cracks in your performance, mm-hmm. capability, like the little teeny tiny stuff, like whether it be your vision, whether it be just a little ache, whether it be like um, you f- falling asleep faster or when you wake up, like certain like, th- just things that you just took for granted, because yeah. they
0: don't like go down as smoothly. I, I'm telling you with Time Wars, there's, there's another thing that I am noticing is like, a higher, consistent—I don't want to call it energy—but there's like a higher. It is an energy, but it's not like a spike of energy. It's like, right. oh, I just feel more, better, more, better. Yeah, yeah. Make, that, yeah. The, make that the make that thing more better. <laughs> Hell, yeah. Make that the slogan. You you feel like oh, like I'll be. Let's call it. Let's call it, seven forty-seven in the morning. Workouts done, and sometimes in the past I'd be, you know, seven forty-seven kind of a little, little, little lull. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, kind of tired. Went for a, worked out. Went for a run. Feeling a little, feeling a little bit of a a, a downturn. Yeah. And right now I'm like feel good. Yeah. That's real good. Yeah. Keep it going. Again, what's the, what's the, what's the change? Just one change. Time War. Right. Anyways, freaking awesome. Check it out. Time War jockofuel.com
3: also originusa.com this is where you can get your jeans american-made stuff mm-hmm. this is not just jeans obviously but all american-made from the cotton grown yep. in the fields to the manufacturing to the even the little buttons on there everything made in america that's a big whatever bro they they yeah, no, try to trick you no. these other brands like a lot of them they'll be like oh yeah i made in america
0: yeah some, sometimes they make those buttons <laughs> yeah buttons. is there how many t's are in button two How many do I say? Zero? Zero. Button. Button. Button.
3: No, no, no. Silent, uh, double silent, two T's. Button. Yeah.
0: You say button.
3: But either way, sometimes. Nonetheless, (laughs) we want those
0: buttons made in America. (laughs) Whole gig.
3: And if if you're down for that, that's how OriginUSA.com. Well, a lot of good stuff on there. Guy's on there, too. New Guy out, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Nano. Weave. Is it Pearl Nano
0: Weave? Is that? Nano pro I'm Nano, pearl. It nano yeah. pearl.
3: Yeah, yeah. See, that one's legit. So I took mine home yesterday. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I have my old Defi. Mm-hmm. I made the little comparison.
0: Let's make Ooh, it. I, step up.
3: I feel you. I feel the upgrade. Yeah, it's good. That's a good one there.
0: OriginUSA.com. Go get some. There you go.
3: Yep. It's true. Also, Jocko store. it's Jocko's stores called Jocko Store. This is where you can get your Discipline Equals Freedom shirts, hats, hoodies. If you're representing on this path, and we're on the path be crazy not to be in this day and age with all this good guidance
0: there's a lot of negativity actually is a more important reason to be on what we're calling the path yeah. what is known as the path I, I noticed that the other day what's weird is I noticed the other day so listen I'm not you know some people like hey you got to bring more positivity in your life like those kind of things and yeah, yeah. watch out for negativity yeah. and give me some more of those little sayings like uh, negative people cut them away like all the, all those kind of yeah. things I I've heard that a lot in my life and i've always not think, thought much of it it didn't really mean much to me yeah you know to me it was like oh you got to stay positive i didn't even think that was a thing yeah. but i don't know there's something like in the last week where i it was like i saw a bunch of negative things oh, all in a very short period of time. i was like oh that's what people it's, mean so and you could get sucked into that negativity yeah And it didn't really make sense to me before because it's never really been a temptation for me to be negative or get sucked in that negative thing. And it's also such an instinct for me to be like, oh cool, we got a problem? Cool, we're gonna go crush it. That's positive thinking. I never thought too much about that. But now I'm like, oh, I get it. So watch out for that negativity.
3: Stay on that. That's path. what I'm saying. So well, we're yeah. staying on the path, by the way. Yes, sir. And yeah, if you're represented on it, that's this is where you can get your stuff. Junkostore.com. Yep. yep.
0: It's, cool it's not a. It's not a placebo. Remember when you were a kid and you got new sneakers and you got to run, you ran, you ran faster.
3: Yes. No doubt about it.
0: This is like you get a short locker T-shirt. All of a sudden, you're more disciplined.
3: Yep. Well, the shirt locker shirt—that's like for us enjoying ourselves on the path, you know. So we kind of go out, color—we color outside the lines every once in a while Mm. with the shirt locker stuff. Mm -hmm. They're fun, new design every month. Mm -hmm. That's a—that's the (laughs) subscription one. But you know, if you're wearing discipline equals freedom, and you choose to work out with that shirt, you know, you put on that shirt. You—the chance of you skipping that workout go down to zero.
0: Zero. Exactly. It's not not possible. It's not possible. Not possible. possible. (laughs) Uh, so there you go subscribe to this podcast as well subscribe to Jocko underground subscribe to the YouTube channel the origin USA J- YouTube channel the Jocko fuel YouTube channel uh, Go to flipsidecanvas.com and get something for you to hang on your wall got a bunch of books Let's get this book Cold War Navy seal by James M. Haas and Mary Ann Koenig. I forgot to mention Mary Ann Koenig But she also uh, helped write the book. So there you go Cold War Navy seal Bunch of really interesting stuff. It's so weird Again, I was talking about this with Jim when we were offline <laughs> is just like the, I went to the the seal team one Anniversary yeah. a little while back 60th year anniversary But I also went to the 30-year anniversary yeah. and so 30 years before that was when seal team one got made Oh, dear. So this is all like I've been around I you know, you're around people that are generally Generationally all part of this group. Yeah, it's kind of wild But a lot of those historical things I mentioned that to him like known about the the war in the Congo That's a thing. Yeah, yeah, and now you're sitting here talking to Jim and he's literally worked directly with Lieutenant Colonel Mad Mike Hoare. like yeah, that's crazy to think about.
2: Yeah,
0: Crazy to think about. So, anyways, check out his book. Check out a bunch of books that I've written, Final Spin, Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. A bunch of bunch of books. We have a leadership consultancy called Echelon Front. If you want need help from a leadership perspective inside your organization, go to echelonfront.com. We also have an online training academy because leadership and life is not something that you just are able to just cruise through and know what to do. You don't, none of us do. That's why we made this training academy online. Go to extremeownership.com, come and check out some of our free classes. Just, you, when you take a free class, you be like, oh, oh, I get it. These are weird skills. I was telling, you know what I was telling the, the troops on, so we got a question on the academy the other day. Yeah. The guy says, hey, my boss is not being transparent, not telling us what's going on, starting to you know be a little bit of a problem with the team, and I was like, yep, hey, here's what you're gonna need to do everyone that's on this call, it's a, we're only doing a live webinar on extremeownership.com. I said, everybody that's on this call right now, if you and we all, we all take ownership, we all subordinate our ego, we all prioritize relationships, we all work to build trust and we listen to each other, that's what we're doing. Mm. And if you're doing that, you are better at relationships and leadership than 99% of the world. So when you've got your boss that's not behaving like a good leader, you're the one that has to use these techniques to help them close the gaps on their leadership, which is a powerful thing, right? It's like you're trying to build a house. Like Echo's over here. I'm watching you. Or let's say Echo, you're building a house for me. Mm-hmm. And and I go in and all of a sudden I see like Echo doesn't have a square to make sure that the, that the walls are square. And I'm like, hey bro, no, it's all good. I got this square right here. And you're like, oh, thanks. Yeah. I'm actually helping you. Yeah. It's not my job. I know you're, you're the house builder, <laughs> but what am I supposed to do, sit back and watch my house be cro- crooked?
2: Yeah.
0: Maybe you don't have, maybe you don't, ha- you're not good at plumbing. And so I go, hey man, let me help you with that plumbing. Let me, fill, let me fill in the gaps right here. Oh, hey, your drywall's not, you're not quite that good of a drywaller. Let me give you a hand. So I'm just making these little, now listen, you're the leader. You should be doing this yourself. And I can sit back and go, oh, this is all messed up. But guess what? I gotta live in the house. Yeah. So go to extremeownership.com, learn these skills. And then you can help your leader, you can help your peers, you can help your subordinates. And by the way, just FYI, you don't help them by saying, hey, Echo, you got a major problem with your leadership. No, that's not what you do, because then they get defensive. You use the indirect approach. You work through it. So that's what we're doing. Go to extremeownership.com. We will help you learn to lead, and it'll make everything in your life better. And if you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help their their families, gold star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. And if you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to AmericasMightyWarriors.org. And also, don't forget about Micah Fink. Who, last report, was riding a mountain lion through the wilderness, and he was rescuing a small bear from a tree. So that's, this is you know, go to heroesandhorses.org. He's out there in the wilderness helping veterans find themselves. And if you want to connect with us, Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. We're on the various... Social media platforms, but just be be advised you think those social media platforms are there for you They're there for your benefit. They're not They're there for their benefit. So just be careful because they got algorithms that are gonna try and hook you up (sighs) Thanks once again to Jim Hoss for coming out and sharing his experiences and lessons learned and more important. Thanks to Jim For all he did to support and defend democracy around the world and a special thanks to those who served with him Aligned with freedom the Cubans the Belgians the Americans who fought and continue to fight clandestine wars to protect the cause of freedom and also Thank you to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all first responders. Thank you for fighting to keep us safe here at home. And to everyone else out there, you're not going to get things served to you on a silver platter. You're not going to get the money that you need. You're not going to get the support that you want. You're not going to get blessed with a perfect team of people that have the perfect set of skills. You're not going to get any of that. That's the way life is. But like Jim Hawes, you still have to figure it out. You have to make it happen. You have to create something from nothing. And if you do that, you too can achieve victory. And you do that by getting out there every day and getting after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.